Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Running Motorsport Magazine Show. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Oh, it's a special midweek motorsport tonight, just after 8 o'clock in the UK. Welcome along, beautiful spring evening here, and we are celebrating a septuagenarian. It is a special day today. Didn't realise you were that old, John. No, not me, not me. We are celebrating the first ever Formula One World Drivers' Championship race on the 13th of May, two. 2020 as we are now it was back in 2000 it was back in 1950 and that means it's 70 glorious years for f1 keep it going you gotta blow all those candles Fantastic! You did very well there. Nick Damon will be back with us uh, in a moment. On a packed show tonight, Tim, we have what? Uh, we have some of the usual features, but we have a lot of guests all talking about their memories of Formula One at Silverstone over the last 70 years. Uh, let's quickly rattle through uh, a few of your tweets. at spec you, Tim, and hello to Sarah Rigby. Uh, just finishing off a 12-hour shift we love you and all the work that you and your colleagues are doing, Sarah. Stay safe. Keep that amazing work going. Uh, hello to Neil Gardner working on his Steve McQueen project. Stephen Gardner, he's working on his Ford GT project. Bit of overspray uh, on the rear duct there, mate. They need redoing again. Uh, St- Kevin Payne, Neil Wooding uh, as well. Uh, David Walton, John McCarthy. Overtime, like he said listening live how are you going to keep bradders from exploding into tiny pieces of excitement says david walton simon hoff uh, also uh, jay atkinson turner motorsport paul waterhouse matt brody rob jayner michael wallace afas tonight surprise face uh, with the ferrari vettel news dirty uncle kevin right turn lover dave alcock chris suku uh, after a full day's Gran Turismo now with Chichina, Spanish Drive, Beef and Nibbles, Alexander uh, and Oliver, Oliver Giles listening tonight as well, Dave Alcock, Jonathan Main, uh, no uh, apologies listening live tonight, Uh, also to Moni partially tuning in in the new house, congratulations to you and Billy for getting that sorted out, Max Markart listening in tonight for the first time. Uh, after listening to the podcast for a year at work. 
uh, Rob, Simon Hoff and the Angry Pottle are all in live. Here is the top story on Midweek Motorsports Series 15, episode number 19. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Only one place we can start tonight, Tim. We're not hiding the we're not hiding the lead here, are we're we? We're not. Uh, Formula One, obviously, would be recovering from the Spanish Grand Prix under normal circumstances. Uh, but there's a different Spaniard making the headlines, and it's Carlos Sainz who's off to Ferrari. Nick Damon. Is he what? Is he going to do the ship? That's open officially. Yeah. Um, well, we talked well. we talked about Sebastian Vettel and his situation at Ferrari a couple of weeks ago, and mm. we've been talking about this for quite a long time with Sebastian. Um, how long has he been at Ferrari now? How long has Vettel been at Ferrari? 2015 he joined them. Right, so this is his fifth season then. Um, Tony Dezino... Uh, Six. uh, sixth season, sorry, yes. Um, uh, his, Tony Dezino, a treasured colleague of mine uh, in the IMSA press rooms, he, he works among other people for Michelin, tweeted the other day quite poignantly that over the last 11 years Ferrari have had either Alonso or Vettel in their driving lineup and have still won no world championships. And don't forget two-time world champion Kimi Raikkonen. Fair point. Yes, fair point. Uh, when so... you second one? Who? Kimi? You said, you said two-time world champion Kimi Raikkonen. That's right. Is he white once? There's no time for that. Anyway, the point is, they've had two of the best drivers, if not the best drivers, certainly with Alonso, the best driver of the time when he was in the car. Vettel, who thinks he's the best driver uh, at the the time, uh, and he's clearly multiple world champion. They've had them. They've not won a world championship. Surely something had to give. Although, did this come from Vettel or Ferrari? What do you reckon? I don't know. I think think the first thing I would say is, um, it's one of those things where you're both surprised and not surprised mm. at the same time. I was very surprised by the timing. It, it's weird for it to come out now in a, in a void area before the season's about to start when everyone's officially on lockdown. So how on earth are we doing the negotiations? I don't know. Um, it's, it's, so that's what the surprising is more the timing. It was always a kind of a, you know, a 50-50 chance whether he'd stay or whether he'd go. And, and, and you just kind of felt that the, you know, the, the strange season might just make people, in fact, they're going to roll the cars over effectively into next year, might just make everyone feel one more year was, was a good idea. But that could be the problem. It could be that Ferrari were only prepared to offer one more year. Apparently, the money didn't matter. And, um, you know, Vettel wanted a long-term contract or nothing. He, you know, he wanted to feel needed. He wanted to feel loved. He wanted to feel the man. I mean, he has been the man. Uh, ever since he joined, even when he did his little stand in Sauber, they, everyone knew he was the coming man. And then, of course, he, he dominated in the year at Toro Rosso, could that win in Monza. And then he was always the golden child um, at Red Bull and, and lastly at Ferrari. So knowing he wasn't anymore the, the main man at Ferrari with uh, Charles Leclerc, and they weren't going to pay him a huge amount of money to swallow his pride, um, he probably decided he didn't want to get involved with that. And Do you yeah. think, Nick, that part of this is down to the fact that there had to be a conversation about who was number one and who was going to be number two going forward. Well, yeah, but they didn't need the discussion until what was the fourth of, of July, whenever it is, when we when we, hopefully we rock up in in uh, in Austria for the first behind closed doors. Um, it's no, what I meant was if he was going to re- renew, presumably he said, yeah, I'd, I'd happily renew, but I still want to be number one, and I presume what was said from. Um, Matteo Bonotto was mm, don't think so son 
Well, that's it. I mean, the the only thing that is absolutely certain is is that Vettel it, it leaves Ferrari without a championship. He's not going to win this year without a championship and with his reputation significantly lower than it was when he joined. Um, he joined off the back of four world championship wins and one iffy season, which everyone went well. Fair enough, you know, you won four back to back and the car was dreadful. Um, but you know, he never really found the consistency or the ability to rise above it or the ability to drive the team forward. It's a chaotic team. And, and perhaps, you know, it's very hard to know where he is. It's, is he going to instantly jump to someone else? And is the fact that Ferrari in the background have done what everyone thinks they've done and already signed his successor in Carlos Sainz, that's all been done. And the fact that that announcement is, is the impendingness of that announcement is what is driving this announcement. Um, is it the fact that he he himself is now decided he's got a much better offer somewhere else and and just wants to remove the uncertainty? Um, that's the surprising thing about the timing. Uh, you, you know, it's it's but yeah, the 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 rumor mill goes in overdrive. You say people are now are, are very much putting uh, science into the Ferrari seat. They're they're already putting uh, Ricardo into the uh, McLaren seat, which is interesting. So I thought that would be the preferential place to end up for Fettel. And they're saying that Fettel might retire and therefore Alonso will go to Renault to fill in for Ricardo. So they filled all the seats already and it's taken about 45 minutes. Uh... Do you think that Alonso will go to Renault though? Well, Alonso wants a, a winning car, he said. And there's no reason to uh, expect Renault to produce a winning car. And He went I... to Renault before and didn't win, didn't he? No, he, he did, did win. win. He won twice. He won. He won two championships, and, and he won. A, he won that special race in Singapore, John. Yeah, and the following one. In fairness, the following one as well. He won. Yeah, um, right. yes, good point. You know, he was. He was. He, he. He. His total innocence of that fact was uh, responsible for Renault pulling out uh, because of the embarrassment, because um, he didn't know anything about that at all, uh, and wouldn't. Uh, and, and it was entirely down to the rest of the evil people in the team. Uh, anyway, so. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 the musical chairs are spinning around. You know, I think, yeah, it is a case very much. I think Ferrari and, and Vettel fell out of love with each other. I think if Vettel's going to continue, he's going to look for somewhere which is much more structured, where he is perhaps just being you know, back to being a driver again who, who has who has large amounts of input, not trying to drive the team forward or trying to drive the team in a certain way. Perhaps he wants to go to a more Northern European team. He's not going to um, get big money, though, is he? Because, as you said, his reputation is damaged. He hasn't done anything. At Ferrari, he had. You maintain that they had a potential championship-winning car for at least a couple of the seasons he was there in seventeen and eighteen, and he's made mistakes. I think Hamilton would have won in a Ferrari in seventeen and eighteen. Um, definitely seventeen, eighteen, not so much because the, the Mercedes really improved after the summer break. But was that down to the work that Hamilton did to develop it? I don't know. Um, but yeah, they definitely would have won with with, with Hamilton. I think in, in uh, one or two of those occasions. Um, yeah, I mean, the point about it is, though, you know, he is still, you know, he's not Lewis Hamilton, he's not Max Verstappen, who are the top two. He's not Charles Leclerc, who's the next one. He's, he's the, the, Do you the rate Verstappen above Leclerc? Yes. Ooh, at the moment. Okay. At the moment, yeah. Okay. I think I think yeah you know, it, it could that could that is that is a ranking that could easily change this season. Um, Hamilton being top isn't going to change in the next year. Um, Let, let's but, talk about signs. So yeah. according according to conventional wisdom, it's the deal's already done. Um, if if that's the case, let's assume that that is the case. Then uh, is that the right move for him, and is it the right move for Ferrari? Um, for Ferrari, they get a fast driver who's got a lot to prove, but hopefully will be happy to be the not written down, but actually are the the number two. 
scientists coming off the back of one very, very good season with McLaren and they three or four seasons of promise interspersed by too many, too many team changes and um, an underlying impression that he was a little bit awkward in his early uh, years at Toro Rosso, though he does seem to have formed a very strong bond at um, McLaren with, with Lando. So perhaps, again, maturity is a key thing. We, we can't keep judging drivers by their first season when, they, when they're in season six because they've changed. You know, people will, will, will look and say, oh, he was terrible in 2011. Yeah, but we're in 2020 now. You know, so it's yeah, you have to, you know, you're only as good as you last result and his last result um was a very very strong season um you know i, I if, I, if it's not signs who might it be it should be ricardo ricardo is a person who's perfect fit for that he is a very good team guy would uh, he go off to be number two again because he is going to be number two there's no doubt that leclerc is going to be number one leclerc yeah, i mean i think i think yeah i think he probably would be um told that you know if all things are equal he'd be number two but obviously things aren't equal and he can he can turn it back in his his opinion his view and you know he knows he's quicker than than Fettel he proved that in 2014 so if Fettel was about the same speed as uh, Leclerc he should feel he's got a chance and and he has won races and he has yeah, you know he, yeah. he's done all that sort of thing Saints may Carlos Saints may well be the greatest race winner and the greatest qualifier ever once you give him a decent car True. yeah don't know Ricardo we know what he can do so but for who, we've gone for science, and how will Ricardo get on a McLaren? Is that? But that was going to say. It. Is is it is it a shoe in that Vettel either goes to McLaren or Ricardo Ricciardo goes to McLaren? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they, they are the next level of driver. You've got, um, you know, if you have Ricardo and Norris in the same team. It's going to be, um, uh, you know, the, the TV company's dream, isn't it? As far as uh, happy-go-lucky, smiley, laughy people going together. Um, you know, I, I think it's likely that, I mean, I, I would think that it personally, if money were no object, I'd probably um, take Fettel into uh, um, McLaren. Um, I think he'd get on well with Andrew Seidel. I think he would work well with Lando Norris as well as a combination of the two. I think that's got more potential in it, it both de- developing uh, Norris and perhaps calming, calming the edges off of the mistakes and the stress out of out of Fettel as well. And it, it, it is a much more structured team now. Andreas Seidel, formerly BMW Formula One, formerly of Porsche with the LMP1, obviously Germanic, very organised. He's brought some some order, some focus back to McLaren, and perhaps significantly they'll have a Mercedes power plant fairly shortly. And, yeah. you know, looking for an ambassadorial role in his twilight years for Vettel? Yeah, I think, yeah, he, he, obviously, you know, he's, he's getting on a bit, so he can't drive around in a Ferrari sports car. So getting a free S-Class is much better, isn't it? Um, no. Is he not just going to retire? Well, you know, that is the other option. And that is where the, you know, if you, if you, if you have a bit of musical chairs you, and, and Vettel does retire, you get left with a spare seat, which is where all the Alonso news has come in. Because... As it stands, there aren't obvious candidates to get promoted into a, lot, a, a top team. And, and it's unlikely anybody's going to be able to prove themselves during a truncated F2, F3 season um, to get them, them moved up. So, you know, if it is looking, uh, the, 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 if the team that ends up with the empty chair is looking for talent rather than cash, then it's quite a narrow pool at that point with, if you factor in experience too. Are we absolutely certain that Sebastian Vettel will even start this season yeah 100% because he's going to get a huge amount of money for it and he might not like made that much but he likes it enough and I think he's a very honourable guy and I think he he's, he still has scores to settle and points to prove that assumes we have a season of course well, that's uh, more t- likely. Tim has a suggestion for you for oh, two suggestions right 
Uh, one of them is the reserve driver for both McLaren and Renault, so could spot <laughs> slot into either of those teams, and that's Sergei Sorokin. He's a journeyman. He's got some cash. As I said, if the team are looking for a decent driver, it won't be. Sorry, if the team are looking for a top driver, it won't be Sergei Sorokin. They're looking for a guy who can drive the car around relatively safely and bring some money. They'll look for him. What about Guan Yu Zhu? Again, no. See above answer. All right, no, we've got some more. But, but, but without experience. We've got some more Formula One news in a second. A few tweets coming in on Artspectatainment. Uh, we'd like your memories as well of your first Silverstone Grand Prix and your most memorable Silverstone Grand Prix as well, if you can get them in Artspectatainment. Jonathan Main says, Nick, you have a distinct DFV sound quality about your hooray tonight. And Alexander Orkin says, that was very good diaphragm control, Nick. Uh, are you rehearsing for the next musical? Well, unfortunately, at the moment, I'm, I'm between shows, love, but uh, hopefully I'll get picked. <laughs> but once, once the theatre's reopened, I'm sure Cameron will be straight on the phone to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's not talking about David Cameron there, uh, of course. Uh, more Formula One news, and this is some jobs news. Yes, Simon Roberts is the new managing director of Formula One at Rocket Williams Racing. Yes. Hooray. <laughs> uh, hang on, uh, hang on underwhelming news of the week there from our Formula One correspondent. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, you know, it, I had to be reminded who he was. Um, and he was, he was at uh, my McLaren. audience. He was at McLaren yes. up to the point that they decided that uh, they were going to send him out on loan to Force India. Yes, and he was in, he was part of that underwhelming, but whenever, there was a Netflix series before Drive to Survive, which was supposed to be, I think, about, Stoffel Van Dorn's first season, but it ended up being much more about the complete chaos of the Honda McLaren relationship. And uh, he was in that in the background, looking confused several times. Hello to Phil Anson, who's organising his guitars in uh, size. Um, he says he'll have to learn to play one. I'm sure he really can. Jesse is listening on the West Coast uh, at the moment. Hello to Andrew Mertha, tuned in live. Peter on the menu, doing some GT Sport round Le Mans mid-show. Hoping people recognise what bump drafting in. And Serafina Chu, still at work, uh, working from home, but tuning in, as well as Andrew Muggeridge listening in tonight. Best Vettel scenario uh, I can think of is leaves F1 to join Porsche as they enter into LMDH. Sorted. Funny you should mention LMDH, Andrew. Tim Greer. Yes, because last week the uh, FIA Endurance Commission, EMET, to discuss LMDH regulations ahead of uh, their ratification by the FIA World Motorsport Council. And yesterday, John, you spoke to Andrew Cotton, the editor of Race Car Engineering, and asked him uh, what they were talking about. Now they've come up with a set of regulations that broadly follow logic. The Americans' uh, manufacturers don't want to build new engines. They want to keep 600 horsepower. Uh, They still use the LMP2 chassis, uh, the LMP2 new chassis which is due to be introduced in 2023 so it's going to be introduced in 2022 which i suspect was some of the hold up and uh but, but, but broadly it it fits with actually what the aco was talking about two years ago i checked my notes from daytona in 2018 and they were talking about a rear only hybrid system uh, quite a small capacity system uh, quite low power output so that it was manageable it was cheap it was effective you didn't have to get into complicated four-wheel drive systems and all of that was working right up until uh, the fia turned up at sebring and announced that they were going to do 
hypercar and it was going to be four-wheel drive with these super duper hybrid systems that were going to cost a fortune and they were going to continue down the path that uh, a lot of the manufacturers were walking away from which is the high cost hybrid systems Mm. so we knew that this was going to be a logical outcome and lo and behold they've produced something that makes sense in terms of imsa and the american side of this this is absolutely what we were calling dpi 2.0 until what, a year or so ago, maybe even less than that. And the key point that you've mentioned there is that the current internal combustion engines, the current power unit, if I can call it that, uh, that is being used can carry over. That is crucial. And I think always was seen as crucial from the US side of things, from IMSA side of things, to keep the current manufacturer interest and to attract potential new manufacturers. Well, exactly. I mean, everybody was looking at endurance racing and and the cars that were produced since 2014 have been extraordinary. Fantastic to watch, fantastic to uh, learn about. And we've learned an awful lot about hybrid systems and how they work and power density and so on. We've got all of that, um, but it was too expensive. The return wasn't there on that investment. And you couldn't take those cars and take them to America and race in the American series. So there had to be something else. It had to be cost driven. And this is we uh, DPI was always a cost effective formula and LMDH is a cost effective formula. So it's nothing surprising. The other half of it, of course, is that the hypercars uh, LMH uh, in the nomenclature of the ACO and the FIA WEC. This suggests to me that there will have to be some recalibration of car weight of the power output from from those cars so that any attempt at the dreaded balance of performance can actually start off from a more sensible aspect well this is the problem i mean we don't know what toyota's hybrid power output was going to be for its lmh car but we do know that the lmdh cars are going to have of the order of 70 horsepower and it's going to have to fall into the performance window of the Toyota if the Toyota is going to compete with it at Le Mans or it will compete with it at Le Mans and Toyota will compete with it at Daytona. So we don't know how they're going to marry that. We, I suspect that Toyota have had to give up an awful lot in terms of power output and in terms of hybrid output. But if they want to race, then these are the regulations. Um, it's not ideal, but they now have a situation where a number of manufacturers can race, but also critically, in my opinion, um, the manufacturers can be represented by customer teams. Yes, uh, they've they've put the price bracket back into the realms of a of a privateer. We do know that a, uh, an LMP1 privateer uh, was running at about five to six million euros per car, and that's a privateer. That's not including the manufacturer. Le Mans. Yeah, that that was that was low. <laughs> that was a low budget, but that was what they could get down wow. to if they brought their own sandwiches. For the manufacturers, we know that it was it was ten times that at and least, more, and, yeah. and maybe more. So they've now put, brought it right back to a manufacturer budget is going to be roughly the lower end, really lower end of a of a uh, privateer budget in LMP one, and the privateers should be competing for a lot less than that. So. If they can get it right and if you can go with a proper car, you can go to a proper race and you can get proper television, then maybe you can get a proper sponsor on board and you can start to make it all work. But the key to everything is low cost. I I, want to talk more about how we're going to get decent racing. 
between these two very different concepts. They come from fundamentally different places. Of course, the hypercar concept is being diluted, so it doesn't have to be a road car. Originally, the weight at 1,300 kilos was something that I was worried about, but it seems that that has been looked at as well in the detail of these regulations. Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing process to have announced, you know, the the, the weight and the power and so on. The problem was the the detail. We we talked before about the tyres and, and how they would cope. Um, so Michelin asked for the whole tyre spec to be changed instead of having uh, a tyre spec for race one that would also be valid in year five, uh, the last race of the year. They changed it that you could have one year of introduction, years two and three with uh, a second spec and then four and five with a third spec of tyre just because Common they need to have, they, yeah, they needed to look at that, but they had to change the regulations to allow that to happen. So they're kind of working with a, with a moving target. I mean, I'm, again, I look back at my notes from Sebring 2018. Um, they were looking at three minutes 15 at Le Mans as the first uh, point of entry, which was nonsense. You know, that, that was always going to produce such loads that uh, they would need to have extensive testing and ex- it, it just couldn't be done. We, we knew that it couldn't be done, particularly on the 30 million. Uh, budget. So now they've gone for more realistic targets. They've gone for uh, much safer targets. They've allowed the uh, the suppliers to have a, uh, a voice, and they have taken into that into account. I'd much rather they took it into account, they changed it and got it right, than yep. they stuck with what they originally intended and made a right big zero of it. Uh, they've had some time. Uh, they've used the time. They've consulted, and and I don't think people should be criticised for that. I hate people saying, "Oh, massive U-turn on this, uh, admitting defeat on that." No, no. This this is an iterative process. I want to stay with the the hypercar for a moment, Andrew, if if I may. Mm. Toyota, we know about. They'll do what they need to do. They, like everybody else, have lost a a bit of time with uh, work not being able to be done. Glickenhaus a bit of an outlier in some respects of all the manufacturers who've expressed interest in either uh, DPI 2.0, LMDH now, or Hypercar, uh, because they do want to build it as a road car, at least in the spirit of of being a road car. And as such, despite them being the early adopter, it looked like they might have been disadvantaged at one stage, and and they've had to change their plans a couple of times. How does the new set of regulations suit them or at least suit the direction that they have been in some ways forced to go in well in some ways it's helped them in other ways it hasn't i mean the the comment about u-turning i think is right to to use that because they started off at you know 600 and odd horsepower then they they were swayed by the aston martin valkyrie and they went up to nearly 800 horsepower uh, everybody changed their plans they all accepted it because they knew that they needed this extra manufacturer in, and then suddenly they're back at 600 horsepower, having made all of their decisions and all of their uh, on all of their long lead time parts, including the engine development. So, I don't think that they were right to to necessarily be swayed by the Aston Martin. I understand why they did it, but they should have stood a little bit stronger and and prevented uh, people like Lickenhouse and Toyota from having to spend the money and and make these. Uh, these decisions that ultimately have come to nothing. But now that they have made this decision, or they've made a couple of decisions that have played into Glickenhaus's hands, the first one is that uh, the season will start at Sebring uh, next March. The Glickenhaus was never likely to be ready. I think their rollout date was always going to be the 1st of January, and it probably yeah. still will be. That's their target anyway. So they're going to be able to take part in you know, the full championship, which they 
weren't expecting to do in the first place. So that's a bonus for them. The second thing is the reduction in power output, the way that they have uh, linked with Pipo Motors, they're going to produce an engine which uh, will be able to have much greater mileage on it uh, be- between rebuilds. So they were aiming for around about 800 horsepower. If they go down to 600, they think that they can take some stresses out of the engine right. and that they can uh, make it better and uh, make it longer, last longer between rebuilds. Difficult question on Glickenhaus, perhaps one you can't answer. Uh, there was uh, a thought that an Alfa Romeo engine might be pressed into service in that car uh, originally when the 600 horse target was was being was being mooted. Um, have we been robbed of that in some ways unnecessarily then? The thought of anything with an Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio on it going to Le Mans was enough to quicken the, the heart rate of a number of people. I think uh, having, having talked to Jim a couple of weeks ago, he Jim uh, this has is, yeah. now, a, yeah, uh, he has a partner that he firmly believes in. That's not to say he didn't believe in the Alfa Romeo and maybe it would have sounded good and it would have, it would have ticked all his boxes. I'm sure it would have done. And that's why he went with it in the first place. But he now has a partner that shares his dream of going as a privateer with, you know, almost an underdog to go and take on Toyota and win. Um, and anyone else who comes in, by the way, they have a chance of doing that. And that's what you need as a privateer. You need the chance. You don't need a guarantee. You don't need you know, some uh, gift in your favour. What you need, as Pescarolo had for, for so many years in the in the early noughties and, you know, plenty of other people had during the 80s and 90s, you need to go with hope in your heart. And if you have yes. that, then you can compete and you can enjoy it. And uh, maybe, maybe you can win. And that's a key point of what we have seen here. The philosophy of allowing LMDH to come and play in the ostensibly European side of things, uh, yes, I accept the WEC, but Le Mans, obviously, the, the jewel in the crown there, and, and some of the European races that would lead up to Le Mans uh, was was obviously always on the table. What hadn't been quite so clear cut, Andrew, was that the FIA ACO hypercars would be quite as warmly welcomed into the IMSA paddocks for some races and and that clearly has an effect on some manufacturers at Glickenhaus would love to do that of course and and now there's a a tacit understanding for at least Daytona and other circuits depending on a, a collection of data by by IMSA and let's be honest their processes are uh, immensely data driven so I, I understand that yeah. that to me is a real positive here uh, A for Glickenhaus but B for perhaps other manufacturers who might have been on the cusp of some kind of programme yeah because if you look at it the uh, the hypercar regulations allow a manufacturer to build their own chassis engine aero but they also yes. then have to develop brakes and clutch and uh, brake and uh, suspension systems and everything else that go with it is all homologated in LMDH. So you have a lot more freedom. Therefore, with the freedom comes the cost. And if you've already committed to hypercar, if you have the opportunity to go and race at Daytona and win it, then you've just re- increased the return on investment. Whether that encourages somebody to make that jump into hypercar or not is yet to be seen. But at least if you make that decision, you have more opportunity to win. You know, you, you can the return on investment is therefore that much higher. But the same is also true for LMDH. If you build an LMDH car, uh, which is, you know, engine and, and aero on an LMP2 chassis, 
then you can race at Le Mans. So the return on investment is even higher. Yep. Therefore, LMDH is still more attractive, I think, unless you want to build your own chassis, which puts it into the realms of Ferrari, which was looking at that very carefully. Who's waiting in the wings then, Andrew? And, you know, this this is still some time off. We're a lot clearer than we were. Is it time enough for people who have been lurking, shall we say, watching to see which way it was going to go? Is it time enough for those guys to start thinking about a, a commitment uh, or a, a, a possibly even a change of direction, Porsche have been mentioned to LMDH, McLaren, who knows what they want to do, Ferrari, hypercar that could now go and do Daytona 24 hours. What are you hearing? Uh, what we're hearing is that everybody's hunkering down and waiting for the end of coronavirus to uh, to hit and see what the impact is on uh, manufacturers and manufacturer racing. I think the key for all of this, this future racing, is that the privateers uh, can buy these cars. So, you know, whether it's uh, Ferrari or Porsche or Cadillac or Mazda or Acura or Glickenhaus or anybody, these cars are available for sale and you can compete with them. So we're following essentially Stefan Rattel's GT3 philosophy of build your car. You can race it as a manufacturer in the key races, but actually you can be represented around the world by privateer teams because the cost is low enough that you can actually run these cars. And that's the key to it. So uh, that's purchase costs and crucially running costs as well. You're not going to need an army of 140 people at Le Mans as as in the the Audi uh, R8 and, and R10 days to do that. Um, you will be able to run it as a privateer at a reasonable uh, cost level. That is the target. Yes. But will that encourage then a manufacturer to go in or not? I don't know. We don't know what the uh, impact of coronavirus and the, and the enforced shutdown of many factories around Europe and around the world. We don't know what effect that's going to have. Even the suppliers, you know, the, the metals that go into uh, the building of the cars and the, and the components of the cars, the production cars, let alone the racing cars, then is the market still going to be there to buy cars? Probably yes, but we don't know. Mm. And until we know, uh, we can't predict anything that that may or may not happen what the organization has done and what lmdh does is put it into the realms of possibility so this is now relatively little money Mm. for quite a big return and if you're going to spend your advertising money on it this is a good cost effective way of doing it it would be remiss of me to be talking to you now uh, without mention ricardo de villa very closely linked with race car engineering, uh, latterly, and I said he'd be missed in paddocks. He'll be, he'll be missed in paddocks all the way around the world. Just a super guy to work with, Andrew. He was a brilliant person to talk to, and he was full of stories. But there's, his, um, he took the same attitude to delivering his stories as he did, uh, you know, delivering races. You know, you have a limited amount of time, you have a deadline, and you have to be ready for it. And he went pushed it to the wire every time so you know the sub editors were kind of looking at it with a, a bit of uh, bit of trepidation when this stuff arrived but it was always good stuff and it was always funny it, it he never found it difficult to write good quality high level technical engineering features and he also had the ability this amazing ability to write these extraordinary columns which always always made us laugh there was never one feature that or, or column that arrived that we didn't laugh the ability that I thought he was probably unparalleled in was the ability to do that high-level technical description and make it accessible. 
he brought it alive for me and he brought the interest in the technical side to me. That was a special talent. And he could do it with humour as well. Yes. So there was an awful, you know, there, there was an awful lot of information that he could uh, impart to you and you may not even be aware of what you'd picked up, but there was always a, a level of humour. There was always uh, a smile on his face and he was always very happy to sit down and take the time to explain to people uh, things that he undoubtedly would have found very easy to understand. But he never, ever stopped wanting to teach. And I think just before he went into hospital, he uh, delivered a a massive Dropbox file to engineers all over the world uh, because he knew that anything that was stuck on his computers, he needed to get off them because no one else was ever going to find them. Um, And he just wanted this information to be out there. So we'd spent quite a long time trying to figure out how to get all of his data sheets and everything else onto the internet that we could actually uh, help young engineers to take them and at least have a starting point. And, And that was so important to him. He loved teaching and he loved taking all of his information and being able to pass it on to the younger generation. Andrew, thanks for joining us, and I hope you don't mind me bringing Ricardo up at the end there. No, it's a tough one to talk about still, but it's nice to talk about him. We've been asking for your Silverstone F1 memories. It's 70 years to the day since the first Formula One Grand Prix at Silverstone back in 1950. Neil Gardner uh, says 1991, but only qualifying, didn't go to the race. John, you and I had a year like that, didn't we, where we were there for Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday morning... Uh, very early we uh, came back to London because you had to commentate on the European Le Mans series race uh, it, yeah I, I think it was the national whatever it was the thousand kids it was Mark I picked Mark Call up on the, the way down did the breakfast show uh, and then uh, left Rob Janus says first F1 1988 at Silverstone marshalled uh, since 1998 uh, number of people uh, seeing the Keki Rosberg year uh, with that lap. I've got a feeling that we might be hearing more about that later later on. At Speculatement, if you'd like to, uh, your first or your most memorable Silverstone Grand Prix. We've got a special Silverstone guest to come. Uh, let's have a bit of news about, uh, a bit more sports car news. A bit more sports actually. car news, yeah. American sports car news, Corvette are not going to Le Mans, but we never expected them to because as soon as IMSA announced their updated calendar, we knew that there was no way that they could get back from Le Mans uh, to Mid-Ohio the following weekend. Nick Damon, we've talked about that uh, some time ago, um, back to back to back almost. Uh, It would actually be quite difficult to get from WeatherTech uh, Raceway Laguna Seca to Le Mans for scrutineering on Sunday, uh, but then re-prepping a car and getting it back from Europe, even without any potential problems that we have at the moment. Um, Sunday to race the next Saturday or Sunday, unbelievable. Yeah, you, you, you actually just need more cars. That's the key point. And they've only got why, three. Which is why Corvette pulling out is um, completely understandable and the you know, the correct practical decision to make, regardless of any politics. Um, and why perhaps the... The Porsche pull-out is slightly more surprising. Yeah, but they're, sure but they're the, the US. But they're, yeah, but the chassis is the issue. It's not the, it's sending a team over and back. Let's assume no, but they're the US back. chassis. That's the thing. And yeah, I'm not yeah. sure um, if they've got another two chassis. Really? For, for, no, yeah, because they're all in, they ha- actually have customers. No, but Porsche can't find a couple of RSR chassis. Come on. 
Well, they must be thinking of from the, the team point of view. There are a couple of other US teams. Rick Ware Racing, they've got a P2 car. You've got a couple of Ferrari teams with Reese and the Scuderia Corsa, the WeatherTech car as well. Presumably, um, I should say, by the way, um, the places have already been taken up. Uh, high-class racing are in with a P2, and that means, ironically, Jan Magnussen um, is back at Le Mans because Corvette have pulled out, and one of the Proton Porsches is in another one of the Proton Porsches. Those three cars that I've mentioned, uh, another P2 car and two Ferraris. A Marto Ferrari will have a couple of spare oh, Ferraris yeah. if they want to do it, and if they can get the team across, and finding yeah, a P2 money. car shouldn't be a problem, should it? No, exactly. There's loads of... There was no shortage of GT Ferraris knocking about Marta Ferrari and Manarello. 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 Yeah, there are so many P2s for rent. It's probably one of the easiest things of all to do. It's probably easier, actually, than getting decent priced airfare. Yeah, indeed. Performance tech as well. But again, they've got the opportunity... Uh, to go to Le Mans. Uh, Nick, thank you very much indeed. We'll have you back a bit later on with some okay. uh, Formula One memories, if you don't mind. I'd love that. And happy birthday to F1. Happy birthday to F1. Tim, where do you want to go next? Uh, well, don't forget that tomorrow night we'll be at Road America uh, for the IMSA iRacing Pro Series. Uh, John, Ben and Nick will be over on RS2 from 10.30pm. Before that, on RS1, the Toro Radio Show at 8pm with Matt, Ben and Jordan, different Ben, uh, will be investigating the modding community and talking about the addition of North Wilkesbury to wire racing, which, oh, yes. of course, is where NASCAR went on its champion, e-championship last weekend. Mm. Uh, but first, some calendar news from Creventic, and John's been talking to their sporting coordinator, Ola Dolman. Well, the prospects are actually looking better the last days. We are uh, having the next races scheduled on the 12th to 14th of June in uh, Portimao, Portugal, and uh, afterwards on the 11th and 12th of July in uh, Monza, Italy. And uh, both races are looking uh, possible to go ahead. Very positive uh, reactions from the government, from the authorities, circuits themselves. We have a green light and we're looking forward to uh, be back on track in June. It's true, isn't it, that in terms of European countries, Portugal seems to have been less affected with the virus than many other places. Is is that what made the decision a little bit easier for you to go back to, to Portimao? Uh, yes, it, it definitely has uh, played a role. Um, we have received news that from the 1st of June, all hospitality, meaning hotels, restaurants, um, uh, tourism, will open up in uh, Portugal again. The authorities are happy to welcome us there. We have put a corona procedure in place to also make sure to comply with, with uh, local regulations. And, uh, of course, safety is always the first that comes to mind. But uh, we are convinced that we can have a safe race in June in, in uh, Portimao. And uh, it's a great uh, place to be anyways in summer. Before you can race, you have to travel. Uh, well, of course, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. We, one thing is, of course, having a green light from the circuit and the local authorities, but making sure everyone can travel to Portugal and back is a very crucial part of the entire process as well. That's why we're in touch with teams on a basically daily basis to make sure who is going to start in the race. And uh, with a sufficient number of teams, we will uh, race in, in uh, Portimao. Um, what we will do most likely, 
and are currently considering and actively offering to our competitors as a solution is uh, chartering an airplane that would take everyone from uh, Düsseldorf to Portimao and back. And that's possible Thank with the, keeping in mind all hygienic uh, rules that need to be respected. And uh, for 750 euro fare, back and forth, so it's, it's a return fare. And um, we're working that out right now and offering it uh, to the teams to be part of our race in June. Travelling is only part of the equation, of course, Ole. And the paddock and the pits area is the other part. And what, what are you going to be putting in, what procedures are you going to be putting in place there to make sure everybody's safe? We all want to race, but clearly everybody's got to be safe. Yes, uh, safety is always uh, the first point on the agenda in this. We have a corona protocol in place that has been approved by uh, the circuit in, in Portimao as well. And uh, basically it means reducing the number of mechanics per team, putting extra regulations in place, having less people on the circuit, and basically every moment that would happen during a normal race weekend where you would have interhuman contact, we um, reduced to... Um, either digital or, or non-physical contact. So, so actually we, we um, make as, it as contactless as uh, possible. What I would like to add, of course, um, these times are difficult for all of us. And, and um, you see when you're sitting at home and, and basically locked up, you're also somewhat seeing um, that passion is quite a thing uh, you start missing then. And uh, what we want to do is bring back the passion of racing all together and with the necessary distance, of course, but uh, racing all together. And um, we are really positive that this can happen this June in Portimao. That was Ole talking to me on Friday night, the sporting director from Creventic. So very positive news uh, indeed. Uh, coming up, some of our uh, Grand Prix, Silverstone Grand Prix remembrances uh, from our Staff Bruce Jones is standing by uh, for his thoughts on Silverstone. At Spec Entertainment, please. First F1 race from Right Turn River was Montreal. Yet to get to Silverstone. Oh, come on, RTL. Try harder. Uh, Chris Suku been there three times. 86, 91 and 92. All won by Mansell. And Glenn Tyrrell, away from uh, Formula One says, honestly thought the last few years endurance racing couldn't get any better. From what I've just been hearing from Andrew Cotton, I think I'm going to be proven very, very wrong and it will get even better. Bruce Jones coming up, but not until we've heard from Creelsey and what's on the grid tomorrow. This week on the grid, a deep dive into the current situation with Motorsport Australia CEO Eugene Oroca joining the show to discuss his organisation's return to racing plans announced this week. It's insightful and a realistic discussion on what's to come over the next few months. Then Red Bull HRT driver Garth Tander joins the show. The Bathurst legend has a chat about E-Series racing and a whole heap more. I had a week off, but don't worry, the usual chat is still there. Dale Rogers and Mark Walker join Tony Shabeki to debrief all the events of the week and see if we can find a way to wrangle our Dan Ricardo into that Ferrari seat. 9pm Thursday night, UK time, only on RS1. That's where you can hear On The Grid. We hope to speak to you then. Bruce Jones is on the line now for us. Uh, Bruce, 70th anniversary of Formula, the first Formula One race is today. Tell me, 
when was your first British Grand Prix at Silverstone and what do you remember of it? 1979 was the year. I was steeped in Brands Hatch, being a boy who uh, was from Kent, and uh, Silverstone was alien territory for me. But a friend from school said, oh, my father's got a spare ticket. Right, I was there. And uh, what a year. I mean, the weekend before, or two weekends before, we'd had Renault scoring its uh, first uh, Formula One victory. And then, lo and behold, another team breaking its duck, Frank Williams's team, at last, 10 years after it had sort of hit the ground in its original iteration and um just such a brilliant car that fw07 and it should have been alan jones's race but in, de- in de- instead you know he suddenly parked it up i think it was water pump failure or something and teammate clay reg at sony came through so that was an enormous element but to me just walking around the perimeter of silverson going these places i've seen fleetingly on tv but largely seen photographs of in autosport or motorsport it was sort of putting it all together mm. and i couldn't believe how different the atmosphere was to brands hatch brands hatch with its bowl its sort of auditorium and you walked off through the trees and had all that magic dingledale westfield etc silverstone wide open seemed to stretch to forever and beyond and um of course similar number of size of crowd about a hundred thousand ringing the entire circuit but what struck me was the wide open nature and just the sheer speed of the place and in time well maybe by good fortune we uh, happened to just uh, find our way up to to maggots which is where we watched the watched the race and it was truly spectacular but for me it was just something totally different the fans were probably the same set who'd go to brands hatch mm. because of course the race used to alternate but it just felt as though it's on another planet and I had no idea at that point as a teenager just how many times I'd be going to Silverstone over the next uh, many, many years. But it was, a, it was a brilliant initiation. It wasn't my first Formula One race, but it was my first one at Silverstone because I'd um, been to the race of champions at Brands Hatch before that. Uh, how old were you then, Bruce? How old was the young Jones at that point? I was just 17. So I was in my you know, early first year of A-levels. And so getting up to Northamptonshire then required a bit of planning, did it? Well, the plan was the boy whose father had the tickets was going to drive... Uh, he had an elder brother, and he was going to drive us up. I stayed with them the night before, woke everyone up an hour early because I was so excited and had to apologise. Um, then we got in the car, and in fact, we would have been better off leaving at the hour I woke everyone because it was a long old drive from South London... Uh, Obviously, no M- M25, then through London, up, up the M1, then cutting across. Massive roadworks. And I still felt really bad about getting everyone up. So <laughs> between Toaster and the circuit, there was a long, long traffic jam. And I said, oh, look, look, it's an ice cream van. I'll hop out as a way of making up to everyone and um, buy some ice creams. And lo and behold, as soon as I got them, suddenly the traffic started moving. And I was sprinting along this grass verge, <laughs> fell into a water culvert, covering our peach ice creams with grass cuttings. <laughs> And then caught up. It was totally different. I used to, at that stage, go to Brandsatch on my moped or possibly by then my motorbike. But it was great. So getting to and from. But it did make me realise just how bad the traffic could be near Silverstone. Yeah. Much better now. But it was certainly a feature of many events. So I always had a policy after that. Get there early. Uh, that podium, Claire Regazzoni winning in the Williams Ford with the fastest lap of the race as well. René Arnoux second for Renault. And then the Tyrrell of Jean-Pierre Jarrier for third position i mean just look at the names just look at the teams on there what variety and that of course was something as you mentioned that was the second grand prix in the row in a row for first victories for for the 
the nascent Renault team and, and for Frank Williams. Yes, it was certainly a far cry from when Renault popped up two years earlier at Silverstone and uh, people getting a turbocharged car. What's that? It steamed, it popped and it, it failed. Uh, but I think if you look at the results, you notice there were only two cars, Regazzoni and Arnoux, the Williams and the Renault, on the lead lap, then Jarier and uh, one, two, three other drivers, John Watson, Jody Schechter and Jackie Hicks, certainly brilliant drivers, but they were all a lap down. And it just showed, of course, this was ground effects. Lotus got it to work the year before, but the FW07 you know, with Patrick Head's genius just took it on to another stage. And that really, it was all about Alan Jones winning didn't come to him on that day but after that the rest of the season was pretty much all about him so it was a classic case of you know someone finding an advantage than another team finding and it seemed to happen much more then it was much more like um almost like a relay race and everyone you could be at the front but someone would drop the baton and someone else would come through and so it wasn't a a linear development it was just occasionally someone would get something right Uh, and they get their nose in front. It was exciting. Ferraris, Villeneuve had to pit for new tyres. They really struggled on the Michelins that day. And then he stopped, a couple of cars stopping with fuel vaporisation problems. Do you remember it being terribly warm? Well, I was hot because I'd been running along with those blinking ice creams. But yes, it, no, it was a very warm day. And it was one of those classic ones. At Brown Satch, you could find your way into some shade. But there's no shade at Silverstone. No. I do remember coming home skin as stiff as cardboard. Because also, let's face it... But a day at the races, you're probably outside for eight to ten hours. <laughs> it's a very long time on a hot day. What you probably didn't uh, register was that was that Grand Prix was very significant in television terms in the UK. James Hunt had retired from racing the previous month, and it was the first time he was alongside Murray Walker for the Grand Prix program, which I'm guessing was probably just highlights uh, in in those days. I, I'm, I'm pretty certain you might not have even got back to to see that on the evening time with the journey back in those days we didn't have a video player in those days so no i would have been i would have been just absolutely knackered because i'd have got back on my motorbike ridden back down to kent uh, from where I, where the where i'd got my lift uh not at all but you know what i i spent quite a lot of time with murray over the years and he really didn't want james hunt alongside him at all he thought james was cavalier he'd turn up with about 10 seconds to go before the broadcast quite frequently after a big lunch, but in no time at all, he realised James really added something and they just developed that most fabulous of relationships, working relationships. And time after time, you'd hear James just drop in a, drop in a grenade and Murray, you could imagine, bouncing around trying to sort it out in the commentary box. <laughs> uh, but it turned into a fabulous, fabulous pairing. Now, as your most memorable British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Uh, you've chosen the 1987 race. Why the 1987 British Grand Prix at Silverstone out of all of the races at Silverstone? They're hard to pare down, but once Nigel Mansell started winning Grand Prix, there was a different feeling in the British crowd. I remembered at Brands Hatch the sort of European Grand Prix rounding out or the penultimate round of the previous season. But 1987, there was already the niggle with his Williams teammate, Nelson Piquet. Of course, you know, Mansell should have won championship previous year. It didn't quite happen. But the crowds were enormous. And one thing about the British Grand Prix crowd, it always used to be a wide, wide range of teams and drivers that people were supporting. And you'd often look at someone thinking, well, pick, pick an example. Why are you wear, waving a Jumbo Jarier flag? <laughs> you know, you're English. He's French. But people really threw the net very wide and they read up and huge knowledge of um, 
drivers, drivers who come here, and I, when I catch up with them at Goodwood, they said, you know, my first ever appearance at Silverstone or in England, people came up to me. They knew all about my career racing, you know, in indie cars before. So people knew their stuff. So that, that was um, a mighty thing. But by 87, with Mansell having really, you know, lit the fire in 86, the crowds were vast, but they had eyes only for Mansell. So imagine their, their despair when going really well and a corner weight fell off. Teammate Nelson Piquet wasn't planning to stop all race, nor was Mansell, but the handling was so awful. And he came back out. Nelson was over the horizon. He was, I think, just over, just under half a minute clear of Mansell. And if ever there was a driver who responded to red rag to a bull, and he was a bull, I mean, he wrestled that car around, closed it down. And I think if you look at any Formula One highlight package in the 70 years since that first one, uh, for inaugural World Championship round at Silverstone in 1950. The battle down the hangar straight with yeah. uh, PK trying to block one way, block another, Mansell fainting inside, outside, then going for it into Stowe. Still epic, epic footage. And then the whole reaction. And then everything with Mansell had to have drama attached. So he's achieved this amazing feat. He's taken the lead again. He wins the race and then runs out of fuel on the way back round. And where's Mansell? We need him for the podium. He's half a mile away. Yes. You know, just typical, a crowd invasion of the track. And um, it was a phenomenal day. But to me, race was massively exciting. But just seeing how delirious the fans were, there were a whole host of new fans to motor racing at that yes. point. Mansell had brought them in. And they'd, that's why so many people were supporting Mansell and Williams. Whereas before, as I said, there would have been much more even spread uh, to be the, you know, the Tifosi, the, the everyone else. Um, but it was you know, John, you've been at sporting occasions all your life. When you're somewhere with a huge number of people and they just go bonkers, it is an elixir. It's unbelievably powerful. You can't help but be moved. And in fairness, Mansell, as you said, he fed from that red rag to a bull, but he fed on on the crowd as well. And the new supporters, dyed-in-the-wool supporters, couldn't have been disappointed with that last uh, 28 laps or so, and as you rightly say, half a minute behind, so a second a lap, eight lap records, uh, broken the lap record eight times in, in that chase back to him uh, and overtook uh, with a, a couple of laps to go, and the crowd, the crowd engulfed the car. Everybody thought that he'd run out of fuel. Um, because, in fact, the display was reading minus 2.5 laps, something that I read recently. He'd, and he'd been running the last six lap on quali mode to give himself a, another 100 horsepower. But he'd actually blown the engine up. You know, there are very, very few drivers in the history of Formula One who could raise themselves for a chase. I mean, a lot of drivers, technically brilliant, but they wouldn't have that ability to go, ignore everything, just go for it. And, and that really was Mansell. It was phenomenal. And, and the, the high, you know, suddenly motor racing was all across the newspapers. And let's face it, it's been a minority sport for a very long time. Those involved thought it was massively important, but suddenly it was front page news and um, did the sport a massive amount of good. Thank you, Bruce. Great remembrances. You're welcome, John. If you uh, were watching the, or if you weren't watching the UK edition of uh, Who Want to Be a Millionaire last night, then you won't have seen that the contestant got to the million pound question, and it was a motor racing question, John. Yes, it was. It was all about which was the oldest of four races. And which of the oldest was it? Was it A, 
the Le Mans 24 Hours. 23. B, the Monaco Grand Prix. Well, that's 1928. C, the Indy 500. 1911. Or D, the uh, Isle of Man TT. 1927. D. Is that your final answer? It is. That's a correct answer. Yeah, you see, I could have got that one. It's the 14 questions before that would have snookered me, quite yeah. frankly. Did he take it? Did he, did he answer the question or did no. he stick it a th- half he, a mil? He knew the answer, but he didn't know that he knew the answer. Ah, so when uh, when he decided to walk away with half a million and uh, <laughs> Jeremy then said, uh, what would you have said? And he said, I'd have man TT. Uh News coming of uh, a special programme on Saturday. Tim will give you that in a sec. Simon Hoff at Spectretainment. The Silverstone Grand Prix I went to in the 80s and 90s were fantastic. All the cars had different engine specs. The, re- the weekends all had a full race programme. The traffic in the spirit of fans was memorable, uh, as were the hours stuck on the Dadford Road. Jill's out of bridge. First F1 race for me, Silverstone 91. Mansell giving Senna a lift on the side of the Williams. Met Nige later on that night. Dunmonica Court and Spa since due to be there in July but might have to wait till next year at Spectretainment and more of that. I remember come. one year walking along the uh, Dadford Road um, on my way into Silverstone. Um, I can't remember what year it was um, but because of the one-way system the bit of the Dadford Road we were walking along had very little traffic on uh, and I think it was only teams and uh, team personnel that were allowed to come from the Buckingham direction on that road. Uh, So walking along it, uh, thinking, it's actually a lot further than I thought it was. Um, And uh, suddenly someone very nice uh, pulls over and uh, offers me a lift. And it turns out to be Fiona Miller's husband. Oh, Andy Miller. Andy Miller. He'd been engineering somebody, I presume. He was uh, in GP2 at the time, and I can't remember whether he was, uh, which team he was at. Very quickly before you do the programme news, and I I know we're getting tight on time even already, uh, David Walton says, I was on the exit of club in 1987 that Bruce has just been talking to. No big screens, thousands of folk seeing the track. Uh, limited to what was in front of you. But we knew Nigel had overtaken Pete here because the roar preceded the cars. More of that in hour two. Tim, what do you have about Saturday? Uh, quickly before Saturday, uh, your darling wife has just lost you uh, £434,000. What did she say? Indy 500. Uh. Uh, Saturday, it's Nick Damon's European Cultural Show, uh, starting at 8pm. <laughs> Uh, we will be playing uh, 20 songs and you'll be voting on them. Uh, and and how, do, how does the listener vote? Uh, well, they can start uh, by voting early if they want to. Right. Um, that'll be up on the website from tomorrow at some point. And on the Facebook uh, Collective as well. Um, and uh, then they'll be able to, if they want to wait until they've heard all the performances on Saturday night, then there will be a voting window on Saturday as well. Are you going to put the links up to the songs as well, Tim, on there? You'll have to, really, won't you? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. yes. Maybe okay. we'll stick them on Facebook. All right, okay. So that watch the Facebook Collective and the website from tomorrow, and then Saturday night from 8 o'clock, uh, I'm presenting, Tim and Nick are helping, and we have proper juries. 
yeah. with some of our compa- uh, some of our contributors as well. That's all Saturday. Yeah, the uh, Euro Demon, as I'm calling it, the Euro Demon con- song contest. Uh, however, that's Saturday. Let's get into the second half of the show. Midweek motorsport, and don't you dare switch off now because the next hour's gonna be even better. So much still to come, and in particular, so many guests to squeeze in that I think we may need a bottle of liquid soap and the judicious use of a shoehorn to get them in before the end of the show tonight. It's Series 15, sorry. I have now got a very strange mental picture that probably won't go away. Series 15, Episode 19, we're celebrating the birth of the Formula 1 World Championship 70 years ago today at Silverstone. Our F1 correspondent Nick Damon along with Andrew Marriott and Joe Bradley will be looking back on their first and their most memorable Silverstone Grand Prix. Uh, yours too, please, at Speculative on Twitter. We're kicking off the second hour, a very special Silverstone guest Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. There can only be one person for our big interview on the Midweek Motorsport where we're celebrating the 70th birthday of Grand Prix racing. It started at Silverstone in 1950 and I am delighted to say that joining us on this auspicious occasion, presumably with a huge cake with 70 candles on it oh that would be a fire risk wouldn't it managing director of Silverstone Circuits Stuart Pringle Stuart first of all thank you for joining us and happy birthday to Grand Prix Racing at Silverstone Uh, thank you John Uh, yes it's it's a big anniversary I wish I was sharing it with a few more people. I'm uh, on my Jack Jones today. Obviously, people will expect us to talk about the current situation. I'm not going to do that for the simple reason I'm, I'm pretty certain you'll be bored with answering the same questions in the same way. The simple fact is that until we know something, we don't know anything. And it's a, it's a moving si- situation. So uh, if, if you don't mind, I, I'd, I'd like to gloss over that, Stuart, and, and move on. I don't mind at all. You're absolutely <laughs> right. I, can't, I, I don't know what's going on, so I can't tell you anything, so glossing over is a very good idea well and you've always been very good with us with giving us access to the information as it uh, arrives and I'm sure you'll do that again obviously you haven't been a ref for all the the 70 years what what was your first remembrances of a a Grand Prix at Silverstone Stuart can you remember back then well I've got a photo of me at Silverstone in the hot summer of 76 uh, Mm. when I was about five years old on the inside of Woodcote quite proud of that photo nice Uh, early uh, I think I probably remember um, Marlborough McLaren's, probably the earliest sort of um, real, real memory. I, th- I, I like to think I remember Hunt, but I'm not sure I, I, I'm, I'm capable of that. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, sort of early 80s stuff, um, Parmalat Brabans and uh, oh. um, MP44s and, and, and that sort of thing. That's when I started to get into, uh, in, into the whole shooting match. And, and was... The, the Grand Prix at Silverstone for the for the young Stuart Pringle was that something or the the nascent uh, motorsport fan that you are was it something that was always penciled in immediately on the calendar and how do I get there will I be able to get there Yeah, I grew up in Kent, so actually Brands Hatch, um, uh, all that that was a, that was a, an awful lot more convenient and, and a lot more relevant and and local and actually Silverstone was a sort of slightly uh, uh, far flung uh, far flung part of the country for, for those of us in the bottom right-hand corner. But um, Grand Prix, as, 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 a, as, a, as a young enthusiast, were things to sort of just aspire to be able to go to these these foreign races, the, the, the Monaco's, the German Grand Prix. Mm. And particularly, I was 
you know, a real fan of the history of the sport from a very early age. Um, I found my mum and dad were having a clear out of, uh, of their attic recently. They've got to that sort of age where, you know, we don't want to be a burden. We're going to have a clear out. And uh, they produced a box of magazines. And I clearly went from spending my pocket money on Victor comic to uh, motorsport. Uh, 81. Excellent. Or was it 81 or 83? Anyway, front cover of my very first motorsport magazine is Derek Warwick in the Tolman when he had that flyer at Brands Hatch. What year was that? Was that 81 or 83? Oh, and Derek, Derek admitted to me only in the last two or three years that they half fueled the car. Uh, it's probably well known, but I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated it. They knew it was never going to make, uh, make full race distance, but he blasted off for a few wonderful uh, laps in the lead. And I remember getting excited about that. And so that's my first copy of Motorsport magazine, which I've still got rather proudly. Uh, and of course, you, you mentioned the fact that Silverstone didn't have the Grand Prix exclusively for, for quite a long time. Yes, in the early 1950s, 50 to 55. And then it was uh, alternated between Silverstone, Aintree, uh, Brands Hatch, of course, most notably, all the way up to 1986. And then from 87, it's, it's been... Uh, at Silverstone. Uh, in, in terms of the development of the circuit, Stuart, how important has the Grand Prix, the Formula One Grand Prix, been to Silverstone in, in all of this, the last 70 years? Oh, hugely. Uh, you know, Silverstone has hosted all sorts of wonderful motorsport, but the, there is no question. I mean, never mind the development of the circuit. The development of the motor racing industry in the United Kingdom has been based upon the fact that we have had um, a Grand Prix, a Formula One Grand Prix in this country uh, for 70 years without missing a beat. And that has really driven this industry, the teams, the seven out of 10 teams uh, that, that, that live in Motorsport Valley. It's unquestionably because we have had a, a race uh, in the UK, primarily at Silverstone. Our circuit has definitely developed, you know, all of the safety measures. When you When you are constantly trying to keep uh, ahead of the requirements of the sport or you know at least meet everything that the FIA require for a grade one track license then you are going to be at the forefront of the of, of the developing safety uh, obligations and 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 that's you know shaped a few corners and and longer runoffs and you know I still regularly have people say oh well it's such a pity we feel a long way back from the you know from, from the track now well yeah, it's all relative. I mean, you see the speeds the cars are carrying uh, now and, and at various points. It was ludicrously dangerous when you look at the speed at which you know, Ronnie Peterson was qualifying and through Woodcut with, with railway sleepers on the outside and the big check to pile up and stuff. And those, those sort of times, things, things had, had to be changed. They had to be made safer. Um, I think we've gone as far as we're going to need to go in terms of altering the circuit with runoff area, um, we're actually, actually this winter, we have done some work to uh, move the crash barrier and the Armco closer to the track. Um, that's on the international pit straight coming out of Club Corner. Uh, and that's to accommodate more spectators around the new hotel that's being built right. there. And actually, FIA were very, very helpful with that. Um, it was the FIM who took a bit of persuading because entirely understandably, motorcyclists don't like hard objects getting closer to the track. Sure enough. But actually, you can do some you know, pretty um, sophisticated simulations and then you just an an analyze the, uh, the, the, the crash data there. And it's not, it's not a dangerous spot in terms of accidents that have taken place. 
And I'm really keen that we try and get the fans as close to the action as possible because you want to be up close, don't you? And yes. uh, let's, let's just get people uh, back. And actually, having won that battle with the FIM, I'm going to go into bat again and see if we can find one or two other areas around the track where we can get a bit closer to the action. Silverstone, in some ways, has been in a, a unique has had a unique opportunity because it had so much space. It isn't in the confines of having woodland area or huge grandstands uh, in a, an arena that you, you couldn't move, although it's developed into that uh, down through the years. The fact that it was the old airfield, the fact that you had lots of space there down through the years, has in some ways allowed the circuit to grow with Formula One, and I accept that potentially Formula One cars are going to be looked at rather than circuits in the future, but Silverstone really has been able to grow with the sport. Uh, it, it has, most notice, notably uh, recently, you know, the, ch- the changes that we we moved, when we moved the, the, uh, the circuit infield, we lost uh, Bridge Corner, which is a great shame. Every driver moans at me still about the loss of that corner. Uh, but actually, in terms of the spectator, appeal coming in field was 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 the right thing to do although i confess looking at the track silhouette it still looks odd to me with the uh uh you know not being the sort of the, the airfield perimeter um shape i'm still uh crikey what are we now um eight years nine years on from from those changes still trying to get, get my head around those but yes we have had the space to grow with the sport um do you know it's not as on the one hand, Silverstone's a massive venue, and when you're walking from one end to another as a fan with a cold box and a chair and stuff, uh, you know, I know it's a long way, and, it, and it's, um, you know, you think, crack is, this place never ends. But then when you're looking at developing it and you think, right, we, you know, we need to put a hotel here, I want to get some automotive brands that can come along and uh, see uh, sort of, um, certainly from our business point of view, I'm keen to try and reduce our sole reliance on Formula One because it's been such a, you know, a difficult commercial balance in the past when so much of your revenue has come in on one weekend of the year. Um, and I guess this year is a, is, is a salutary reminder that that, that that is still a pressing, pressing uh, need because when you don't have that big weekend in front of the public, uh, you certainly notice it in, in your P&L. But actually having the space to develop uh, within the circuit and still having the space to accommodate these huge highs but then not feel too open and and uh, expansive for the relatively small but still nonetheless important club meetings because I'm you know really proud of the fact that the club competitor in the UK still gets to drive on the on on the international stage that is Silverstone. Actually, the space is not as quite as big as you, <laughs> as sometimes you think. And, and that's a good point that you make there because Silverstone. Uh, uh, British Racing Drivers Club is at Silverstone, Silverstone Circuits Limited. It's a business and therefore it, it, it has to make money. That's that's what it's there for. Otherwise, it, it can't exist. But very, very proud of being part of the local community. And by that, I mean within um, Northamptonshire and Buckinghamshire and the wider motorsport community in the UK and beyond. Uh, absolutely. Um, the BRDC has uh, had his fair share of critics over the year, uh, noticeably Bernie, who was um, always keen to bash, bash the club. But I, I tell you what, if it wasn't for the fact that there was this uh, eight or 900 enthusiasts who've achieved in the sport uh, and want the sport to succeed, it's difficult to have seen how the, how the circuit would have developed under, under purely, purely sort of a truly commercial ownership. Because 
the club doesn't take any money uh, out of out of the circuit. Any profit that we make as their wholly owned subsidiary company, with the exception of a couple of passes per member and some biscuits to, to go with their coffee. You know, that's that, those are the only benefits that, that the members get from their from the membership of the club. They they choose and they approve this every year that the that the monies go back to are reinvested back into the circuit. So this development, this upkeep does does keep going, and that allows uh th that allows us to do some you know re really good deals with with some clubs to come when frankly they wouldn't be able to do it it allows us to open the circuit up to the local community um on either side of the county boundary so families can come up and circle cycle the circuit um on a summer's evening or uh local cycling clubs can come and enjoy it or we can host some of these uh these community events and and I am keen to see it as more of a community asset. Um, do you know, I think in this post-COVID-19 world, I think that's probably going to be one of the areas that we're, we're going to all going to want to focus on a little bit more about, you know, what are the, what are the community facilities? What, what do we want as a, in, in our, in our neighbourhoods? And I'd like to say, like to see Silverstone play its part in that. I think, I think we can, can contribute. And what a perfect venue for families to come out and have the room to socially distance and maybe bring some bikes up for the kids, get them off the busy roadways, the getting busier roadways, and, and have a lovely summer's evening uh, riding around the track. I think that's a cracking idea. Um, 70 years down then for Silverstone and, and Grand Prix Formula One racing. I, I won't ask you what will happen in the next 70 years. Uh, trying to guess what's going to happen in the next 70 minutes at the moment is difficult. But but in terms of Silverstone and its place in the motorsport world, in particular the Formula One world, where where do you think we are in terms of, of, of making plans forward, even at this difficult time? If we take that out a little bit, where, where would you say Silverstone is? is it, does it still have one of the the cornerstones, if you will, of the of the big Formula One events? I believe so. Liberty uh, or Formula One under Liberty's ownership were, were quick to recognise that Silverstone along with Spa, Monza and Monaco were the four cornerstones of the championship. Uh, they're, they're, they're right to view that. But I, but I think interestingly, just look how good the racing has been at Silverstone over the last few years. You know, you don't, it, I find it really ironic that a track that was scribed with a you know, a pencil on an airfield chart actually continues year in, year out to give some of the most exciting racing. Uh, last year's British Grand Prix was an absolute stonker. Um, and, and actually, you go back, there aren't, there aren't too many shabby races at Silverstone. There are an awful lot more uh, else, elsewhere. Most years, the track layout, uh, and, that, uh, and that's sort of regardless of the track circuit, the surface, but now that we have resurfaced it, we're getting some real performance benefits out of this uh, absolutely grade, grade A asphalt that's down. Um, you know, we get great racing at Silverstone, and I think that helps secure. Uh, we've got the history, we've got the heritage, we've got this, these 70 years that you can't buy, you can't make up. It doesn't matter how much money you've got in your far-flung corner of the world and you build a Grand Prix circuit. If you haven't got those images of Maserati uh, 4 CLT 48s in 1948 or the, uh, the Alfa Romeo 159s in, in 1950 uh, going around, you haven't got that history and heritage. And um, I think that the combination of great racing history, heritage, but also great facilities. I mean, never mind the asphalt, which is key to everything. We're going to have a new hotel open for the next time the public will be able to come uh, to, to the circuit. 
we have got a new museum, the Silverstone Experience, which is a much needed additional family entertainment, both over uh, event weekends here at the circuit and and all other days of the of the week brackets when we can reopen it again um <laughs> and uh you know actually our facilities here are as are, are, are as good as anywhere else and and set to become better because we've got this commitment from the brdc to uh to, to invest the profits which i hope we'll be able to start making again soon before too long so i'm very buoyant about the outlook um i think that formula one recognizes this is an important home and we uh, we just need to get the world back on an even keel again, don't we? Get Abs- cracking. Absolutely agree. I said I wasn't going to ask you about the here and now, and, I, and I've, I've kept to that. But if we look towards next year, let's be let's be positive and look towards yep. next year, 2021, and a season. Is there even a situation that you could foresee, and talking within your part of the industry, Stuart, where for Formula One in particular, the European heartland will become more important than it ever has been well, I guess uh, I guess there has to be. Um, crikey, you know, let's hope that it's not still rampaging through continents in a year's time. But it's it's not in, inconceivable. Certainly at Silverstone, we offer a good deal of practical benefit. Um, you know, one of the teams is 400 metres from the front gate and uh, a couple of the others are sort of five miles away. So, it, you know, the, it makes it definitely has to make a difference that uh, Europe is... Uh, relatively accessible, and the majority of of of, of tracks are are drivable for the for, uh, for the trucks from from the teams. But if you're going to have a world a world class canvas, you've got to get to all corners of the world. World championships need that. Uh, Formula One is a is a very adept organisation uh, these days at, at at navigating challenging political global situations. If if any sport can pull that off. I have every confidence it, w- it will be Formula One. They know exactly what they're doing and having just a slight insight into what their preparations are for dealing with the 2020 season now, you know, they are not 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 afraid to put their money where their mouth is to keep, keep yeah. the show on the road. So I think, you know, it's possible it could be Europe. I hope the European heartland remains such for the next two or three decades because I, I do feel strongly that that is where, 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 the, where the sport has its basis. But, but I think that you know, without the trips to Australia, I mean, you know, competing in a, in, in, in a city centre on the other side of the world for the opening round of the year is is exotic beyond words. And, and closing in the sunset in Abu Dhabi every season, you know, it is cool. And it's a really nice adjunct to, to, to the classics of, of the, the Monza Spas and, and, and Silverstone. So the, the calendar is, is about right. It is It is sufficiently flexible. And actually, you know, there is a sense in the Formula One community and uh you know i know my other opposite numbers in at other circuits very well there is a sense amongst us all that that we've got to put our shoulders to the wheel um to try and make sure this thing gets through through this season in as healthy a condition as possible because we want it to thrive going forward you've told us about your first grand prix uh, at silverstone i suspect if i was asking you about the most significant you might well say the next one uh, i'd probably say that every year actually I'm trying to diversify this business, as I mentioned, and, and we're doing quite well uh, until recently, and we we will pick that up again. But there's no getting around the fact that when you run the biggest weekend sporting event in the UK, it's a big gig, and every year is significant. You know, we are we are now typically attracting about uh, a quarter. Uh, 
a quarter of a million, sorry, a third of a million visitors over, over three and a half days each year. It's, it's massive numbers and operationally getting that right, the challenges that come with the British weather. We had a MotoGP race cancelled a couple of years ago because it was a washout. Uh, we've had tourism conditions go up and down in recent years. Uh, then you come up against this, you know, there's always a curveball. So I would say you're correct, John. Uh, the next one is always, always the most important. Um, I will never forget 2008. For me, that's the standout one. Uh, that, that Hamilton win in the wet was something that, is, that will remain with me forever. Nobody, nobody finishes a minute ahead of the second place car. Uh, or over a minute ahead of the second place car. So um, from a sporting point of view and a fan's point of view, that's the one that, 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 that I will remember. But I think the most important is probably next year. You're right. Stuart, thank you very much for taking time out on this important uh, part of the year uh, and important part of Formula One history. Happy 70th to Silverstone and thank its you, Formula John. One history. And please pass on our best to everybody there. You're doing great work uh, at Silverstone and the place has been transformed in, in the uh, the recent past. Stuart Pringle, uh, Managing Director of Silverstone Stur- Circuits. Thanks for joining us on Midweek Motorsports, Stuart. Good luck. Cheers. Thanks, John. Joe Bradley, what was the first Silverstone Grand Prix that you ever went to? 1981 is the first time I went to the Grand Prix uh, at Silverstone. Had you been um, to a Grand Prix before that, Joe? No, no. Very first one. When, I'm trying to think of what car I travelled down in. It was probably my Capri. You, Mark one you, and a half. You, me and Capris have uh, history with going to Grand Prix, but let, we'll leave my story. This is not about my story. This is about your story. 1981, then. What do you remember about going to Silverstone, coming down from the northeast, of course? And before that beautiful new dual carriageway, you came off at the toaster, uh, the toaster turn off on the M1, and then it took you about two hours to get to Silverstone from the M1. <laughs> uh, no dual carriageways in those days. Uh, in fact, the road is still there, just to the right of the of that new road. Is it the year 43, that? It is the year 43, well yeah. remembered. My, one of my memories is um, walking into the toilets at the back of the pits. This is in the days when Formula One was very accessible. And the security level at the back of the pits that um, differentiated where you were allowed to go and, and where the team was allowed to go was those just those like one and one meter high pedestrian barriers. Um, no high fences, no passes needed. You could walk wherever you wanted. So um, into the back of the paddock, into the back of the old pit. Yeah, 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 yeah. No fencing whatsoever. Just those pedestrian barriers. And some of the teams didn't even bother with that. So it was kind of an open paddock, the sort of thing you'd get if you went to a Silverstone clubby these days. And my, one of my memories is um, going into the toilets and urinating next to Mario Andretti. Um, it was the same toilets. The toilet facility was, was what the drivers used. And that was, you know, it was an autograph hunter's delight because you were able to... Hopefully not in the lavatory, Joe. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. But I did send my then girlfriend, who turned out to be my, uh, ended up being my wife and mother of my children, into the Ferrari pit to grab Gilles Villeneuve's um, autograph. However... He had to. He had to tell it to go away because he was stepping into the car. I thought, you know what? I give you one job, and the timing of it was ridiculous. He was literally stepping into his Ferrari uh, to go out, and of course, Villeneuve uh, coming round to complete lap one. He was the car that ended up into the catch fencing, causing John Watson to come to an absolute standstill in all the tyre smoke. He brought the McLaren to a standstill, 
and then resumed and went on to win the race after actually stopping on the track to avoid absolute carnage. I think he took Alan Jones out as well into the catch fencing with him. So Ian so had qualified down in eighth position. Poor position was Rennie Arnoux in the Renault 111 flat. Alan Prost, his teammate, was on the front row. Then it was P.K. Peroni, Watson in the McLaren with his teammate Andrea de Cesaris alongside him. Then Alan Jones in the Williams and Gilles Villeneuve in the Ferrari. That was your first four rows. Uh, where were you watching the race from, Joe? I, it was a big learning curve being the first Grand Prix. I didn't realise that you had to be at the gates to get in at like 4 or 5 a.m. to get a good spot. So I waltzed in kind of mid for, for probably what was morning warm-up, morning practice. Had you just driven and down that day or did you go down the night no, before? No, no. Went, went down on the Thursday. It was there for all the practice, qualified. I do remember a very drunken Saturday night in the paddock bar and there was this very drunken uh, male singing about how great Nigel Mansell was. And I believe Nigel Mansell had failed to qualify for the Grand Prix. And I was standing to this chap and this chap said, I haven't got the heart to tell him that Mansell hasn't qualified because he was a big, you know, singing in, in a very drunken way. Another uh, feature of that race with Watson winning would have been the very first win for a carbon tub. Correct. So McLaren, 4-1. 4-1, yes. Yep. Very first one. John Bernard uh, was the designer. And of course... That was probably Ron Dennis's first win in Formula One with McLaren International because uh, they didn't win a race in 1980 and that was his first season, wasn't it? I, I want to go back to you not getting there in time, so having to, to, to queue outside. All right, and, I, and, what, yeah. and what did that do to your viewing experience then? Where did you watch on race day? You see, ideally, I would have liked to have been at the Woodcut Chicken. Presumably, you didn't me. buy a seat, Joe. No, no, I didn't buy a seat. No, no, I didn't realise he had to buy seats. I just thought, you know, I didn't really know anything. I just, you know, let's go to the Grand Prix. So we ended up on the grassy embankment just on the entry to Cops. So I had a pretty good view of the start, of the, the field coming from my right on the outside of the circuit. Yep. So the cars, I was in that yep. kind of just on the breaking point for the corner, nice. which in the ground effect days was very close to the apex of Cops. <laughs> and then... Cops was a lot tighter back in 1981. It was at a different profile than the one that you see now. And, of course, we had a tails-away tails shot oh, of the fields going up, up towards, towards Maggots and Beckett's, yeah. um, which was the old Maggots and Beckett's, remember. What I, what, another um, thing that I discovered was that uh, TV doesn't really capture all the racing. So the Grand Prix coverage of the day used to usually focus on the leader. Even if the leader had a minute and 30 seconds lead, the camera would just follow them round and you'd have these great battles down the field. And that, that was what, uh, what struck me, was like all this racing going on behind them. I remember uh, Derek Daly in the Guinness-sponsored March 801. Yeah, finished and, two and, laps and, off the lead in seventh. Do you remember who scored points, Joe? No. Slim Borgood got a point was one wow. lap off the leave in the ATF Ford. Hector Rabak in the Brabham was in fifth. Um, those two started from respectively 21st and 13th on the grid. Up from 23rd to 4th, Eddie Cheever in the Tyrrell 
From 14th to 3rd, Jacques Lafitte in the Ligier Matra. What a noise that thing made. Well, that was mm-hmm. one of my favourite cars of the era. Mm-hmm. Second was Carlos Reutemann. He came from ninth on the grid in the Williams. And John Watson, who was fifth on the grid, won the race. I mean, so you saw you Slim Borgwood get a point, mate. I did. That, you know what? That, that, that memory has escaped me. It's, it's, it's been dropped. It's been defragged out off the hard drive. Uh, <laughs> unless I got the auto course out and uh, re- re- reminded myself. Of course, when, you, when you're at a Grand Prix, the actual race is just kind of peripheral to the being there at the event. There's so much goes on. Let's move to 1985, which you've selected as your most memorable. The podium was Alan Prost in the McLaren tag. Ferrari and Michele Alboreto were second. And Jacques Lafitte was third. But it's not for the race that you've selected this, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. And if you ask anyone about the 1985 Grand Prix weekend, they'll probably tell you what I'm about to tell you. The most, perhaps one of the most, if not the most memorable things I've ever seen in in the events that I've seen for Formula One is this moment I'm about to tell you about. And that was the qualifying lap by Keke Rosberg in the Williams. And remember, it was the turbo cars, these things were absolute beasts. It was in the days of the qualifying tyre. The tyre was nursed on the outlap, nursed to a point where, you know, absolute science came into it as to when the driver could really start using the tyre. Because the tyre wouldn't last a lap. The tyre at the end of the lap, and remember that, the end of one lap, by the time you, you're coming towards that final turn, your tyres are shot. In the same way that in modern-day Formula One, you talk about the tyres dropping off a cliff this was at the end of your qualifying lap. The tyres would be gone. And it was I was on the outside of Woodcut chicane, and I had a direct view of the cars coming towards me, out of Abbey Curve, coming directly towards me to go through the Silverstone Woodcut chicane. Mm. You, can you remember the configuration of that? It was a right, left, across a curb, and then right again. And in those days, with ground effect, it was virtually flat in top gear. It was virtually no differentiation in speed whatsoever. And I saw Rosberg come come charging towards us. And as he turned into the chicane, everybody in the grandstand had a huge intake of breath because it was like, he's going to come into the grandstand. He's going to be sat next to us in the grandstand. Yeah, you're thinking he's He's off. Absolutely. He is so off. He's turned in at such a different speed to everyone who have been sat. You become kind of sanitised to it. When you first walk into a Grand Prix weekend and you see and you walk up to the fence and the cars go by and it blows you away because it's been, you know, 12 months or so since you last saw a Formula One car. And then after, you know, the first practice session, you become kind of sanitised and anaesthetised to it. And it's just, yeah, that's the norm. That's how fast these things really are. So this thing really stood out, the way the Williams... And the thing just danced from the first right-hand curb to the apex. It was absolutely phenomenal. It wasn't thought to be the quickest car through the high-speed corners either, was it? It was was the McLaren um, with the tag Porsche engine. By then, we were on MP42Bs. And they were thought to be the cars to beat in the high-speed, but... Rosberg elevated that Williams and basically picked it up and threw it at the corners. I remember that because unusually qualifying was live on television that year. And was I it really? Re- yeah, and I remember watching that and thinking, 
Bradley's there watching that. And it, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Because it was... Silverstone's always been known... British Grand Prix's always been known for a very well-informed audience. And as soon as the time went out at under one or one minute and six seconds, one or five, five, nine, one, if you're counting, everybody knew that that was a significant milestone because that was over 160 mile an hour average, 160.9. And that stood as the fastest lap in F1 history for 17 years in qualifying. Yeah, and I saw that. And you and everybody knew as soon as as soon as it came over the PA, you could even see that on the television that everybody knew what had just happened. Well, you could you, we 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 knew we were watching something special. And remember these are the days when Club Corner was flat. These guys came through Stoke, mm. off hander straight through Stoke, which was a right-hander, and then into Club, which was a right-hander, a 90-degree sweep and right-hander, and they were taking the, that corner flat chat. And they didn't lift. All right, I'm not even sure. Store was probably a gear down and then back into top, fifth gear, through club, flat out, through Abbey Curve, flat out, and then throwing it, throwing it at the Woodcut Chicken. And you mentioned the McLaren there. And equally as um, awe-inspiring was the way that Alan Prost always got his lap times mm. in completely the different fashion. Prost would go through and you would think he's on his out lap. Yeah. And then... It would be Titchmarsh who would shout, and there's Alan Prost on the pole position. Ian Titchmarsh, famous commentator, of course, yeah. Really? Really? That, I thought that was his own lap. That was his quick lap. Well, he qualified he was... third at seven-tenths away from Rosberg. Rostec, yeah. Ro- Rosberg was, was six-tenths, six-and-a-half-tenths on the field. Remember, uh, John, remember, John, that was quite the norm to see actual tenths of seconds between cars. People complain about how boring Formula One is, and we have something like, a tenth and a half between first and tenth. It's like that's how Joe, competitive Formula One is. Prost and, Mc, uh, Pro, Prost and his McLaren and Senna and his Lotus Renault, their grid positions came from qualifying one. Uh, so, and they, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. they didn't yes. improve in the second in the second qualifying. Mansell improved up to up to fifth. They found three seconds between the two qualifying seconds. But that day and that time, Rosberg was in a class of his own. Was the race a bit of a, an anti-climax? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the report, so um, th- there was quite a bit of mechanical failure, uh, actually. Uh, and, of course, that was the race where the chequered flag was shown one lap early uh, when Prost uh, went through at the end of lap 65. Uh, Lafitte ran out of fuel on the slowing down lap, which should have been the last lap, which meant PK should have got a point, um, but didn't, uh, and, and no, there was no real answer to why the, the checker flag came out a, a lap early. The other thing is, you've got to remember that this is the days, the early days of Radio Silverstone, which would have been on AM. Yeah, which would have been very scratchy on the medium wave. Very scratchy radio. You li- you can't hear the peer because the engines drown it out. So you listen on a scratchy radio. So to keep abreast of what's happening on the track was kind of was kind of very difficult. Were you lap chart? In, in my head to a point, you can easily lap. When you stood at one point and you yeah. don't wander away, you can, you can lap chart in your head. You, you know, you have, you have no idea. Somebody's going, yes, you see, so, oh, where's such and such? Oh, they haven't come round. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. When did they stop coming round? That kind of thing yes. in your head. You know, he's leading, he's in the pits. He's, he's now leading. Oh, he's, he's now in the pit. You know, so you can keep a lap chart in your head and follow a race pretty well, but not, 
to the extent that you can these days. I mean, you, you know, you've got diamond vision screens and mm. uh, clear FM radio uh, uh, from Radio Silverstone. It's it's a completely different ball game now. The, the fact is, you know, going to Silverstone was a was an annual event that I did for about twenty years, and it was um, I remember who's going to look after when we when we eventually had kids a few years later we always used to plan where the kids were going to whose house the kids were going to be staying at for that grand prix weekend and it was a it was a full weekend we used to get there on the thursday and it would be a full weekend in the campsites camping it would be a great atmosphere fabulous silverstone atmosphere proper pilgrimage from joe bradley who watched history and keki rosberg with the first 160 mile an hour qualifying lap we're celebrating 70 years of Grand Prix racing. The first Grand Prix at Silverstone, of course, was on this day, three score and ten years ago. Andrew Marriott is joining us with some memories of Silverstone Grand Prix. Your memory and your attendance of British Grand Prix, Andrew, goes back further than all of the rest of us. What was your first British Grand Prix at Silverstone then? Yeah, the first British Grand Prix in Silverstone was in 1963. I just got into racing then. I was still a teenager, of course. Uh, But uh, I went along uh, for one of the support races, actually, and also reporting for my local newspaper, the Derbyshire Advertiser. So it wasn't too difficult to get a press pass in those days. So uh, I had two passes, uh, one as a mechanic (laughs) and one as press. So... um, it what was, was the support uh, race then? Who were you looking after in the support race? Uh, it was in the GT, a little Turner, uh, I think it was. A, a Turner BMC, one litre. I've got a Turner sports car now, very similar to the one that I was helping crew, driven by a bloke long forgotten called uh, John Seabrook. But it was it was the factory team, and, uh, yeah, we were helping with that. So, that, you know, we're hanging out pit signals and polishing the – well, I wouldn't say polishing the wheels, actually, because there were wire wheels on that particular <laughs> car. <laughs> what do you remember then of heading down from from Derbyshire to Silverstone? The road network, the infrastructure, completely different in the early 1960s. That that would have been a bit of an undertaking then, particularly if you were getting a racing car down there too. Well, I, I was doing it very quickly in my mother's Mini, uh, which I subsequently managed to somersault. But that's another story. So, no, I was, you know, flat to the floor all the way, really. Um, I don't know how long it took, but there was obviously no motorways or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I was so little traffic on the road uh, comparatively. Uh, so, no, it was, that was all right. And getting in was always a challenge, of course, and getting out was an even bigger challenge because, uh, you know, the traffic was absolutely appalling close to the circuit. But, yeah, um, went in the Mini, parked uh, next door to the toilet block with the roses growing up it. <laughs> Warm, dry and sunny, it says, for Grand Prix uh, on the Sunday. The top six scoring points, of course. Jim Hall yeah. for Lotus in sixth. Lorenzo Bandini for BRM. Richie Ginther for BRM in fourth. Graham Hill on the podium for BRM. And John Surtees and uh, Jim Clark battled it out for the lead. In fact, Graham Hill, Hill was under 40 seconds away from Jim Clark uh, at the end of the race. But but Jimmy was on a, a rich in a rich vein of form uh, in that year and at that time. Absolutely. He had the best car. He was the best driver and the best team. And I think um, he was controlling the race, really. Um, he was my big hero, of course. So I wanted him to win. And in the end, he beat John Surtees by... 25 seconds but uh 
John Surtees got the fastest lap right early in the race, actually, the third lap of the race. John Surtees uh, put in a lap uh, 136 on the, the old uh, three-mile circuit, that uh, the uh, shape that we remember for so very long before they added all the twiddly bits. Um, very fast it was, too. Um, so, you know, I was delighted that Jimmy won. And, uh, I was, of course, the big thing was a, Brit, a British 1-2-3. What a result that was for the UK. Yeah, all Brits on the podium ahead of Richie Ginther, uh, who was second in the championship after that race to to Jim Clark. It was a golden era for British drivers and particularly for Jim Clark. The 1963 season, very successful for Jim. That, that's right. I mean, also had Ellis Island uh, was a retirement in that race. I went just looking at the entry list. Uh, Trevor Taylor. Um, a good friend of mine, actually, the, the man who always wore the, the yellow race suit when everybody else was wearing the blue Les Leston suits. He had a, a yellow suit and a, a yellow crash helmet, the Yorkshireman. Um, he, he was a, an early retirement. He, he could have been up there in the top three or four as well. I mean, he was definitely a number two. There's lots of talk these days of number one and number two drivers and they don't exist. Well, very clearly at Team Lotus, Trevor Taylor was the number two. He knew he was a number two and he was delighted to be there. But sadly, he didn't didn't uh, make it. And of course, also different was there was quite a few uh, privateers in yes. the race. Ian Raby in the in the in the Gilby BRM and uh, a few others as well. Uh, but it, it it was great to report a race like that, even as a you know a reporter for a local newspaper. You've got fantastic access. Um, I love the fact that a local Derbyshire newspaper was sending a cup reporter <laughs> down to cover the Grand Prix. Of course, they can't do that nowadays. Strictly uh, access, strictly governed. Yeah, well, I was a freelance on 17 and 6 a column, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you can remember exactly how much you were being paid in those days. Let, let's fast forward then to a significant yeah. one in, in your memory. Uh, and 1973, the 14th of July, the 9th of 15 World Championship races, uh, the British Grand Prix was that year. Again, a, a dry race, 67 laps of the circuit. Ronnie Peterson on pole. Ultimately, James Hunt in the march forward would take the fastest lap. But the main thing here and the main, I suppose, memory that most people have, Andrew, is at the end of the first lap. And is, is that why that sticks in your memory too? Uh, very much so. Um, I had been a bit of a mentor to Jody Schechter. And in fact, um, he'd come and slept on my flat floor when he first came from South Africa. And that's a, a, another another story. But uh, you know, so we were pretty pa- pretty pally with Jody. And I'd actually introduced him to Phil Kerr at McLaren, who was the commercial director of McLaren, uh, and basically got him the drive there. Um, straight out of, of, of Formula 3 and Formula 2. So I was quite uh, responsible for Jody. And part of this deal was that I wrote his column every week for the Star newspaper in South Africa, which was a big daily newspaper. And so we did a, a more or less a weekly or certainly a column for every Grand Prix. So those with a bit of history will know that Jody Schechter caused the most massive accident in the career of the British Grand Prix at the end of the first lap. Got a wheel out. I saw it all. I was looking right at it. Uh, wheel out in the dirt, coming out of Woodcut, which, of course, extremely fast then, spun in front of the field. I think he was probably lying about third or fourth, spun in the front of the field, and he took out Mike Halewood, Joachim Mass, 
Carlos Parche, Jean-Pierre Beltoise in the BRM, Andrade Adamich, who I think broke his leg in that accident, Roger Williamson, George Fulmer, Jackie Oliver, shall I go on, Graham McRae, uh, uh, Graham McRae. They took out about nine people in this huge shunt because obviously stopped the race. And uh, my my then business partner, Barry Gill, was uh, the sort of pits reporter for... Uh, for, for, for the BBC, actually. He jumped over the wall and got down in the middle of it all and, and was getting the interviews and so on. But when it was all over, and of course, then the race restarted and, uh, you know, we had a victory with another good mate, uh, Peter Revson, the American, one of his, his, his rare wins, a super guy, Revy, came from Ronde Ronde Redondo Beach, California, the Revlon Cosmetics family, and he just looked a film star. He looked like a real racer, Peter Repson. So I was delighted he won, but it, it, it had to be a bit of a lucky win, really. Although McLaren had a very good uh, team and car at that time because he was a, a teammate of Jody Schechter to cause the accident. Anyway, one of my jobs afterwards, John, was to go and find Jody Schechter to write his column. I mean, what's he <laughs> going to say? He's caused the most massive accident almost in the history of, of racing. And so uh, about two hours after the end of the race, I finally found him in the McLaren uh, transporter not sure everybody had motorhomes in those days i think he was in in the transporters oh, i said jody what are we going to write he said i don't know he said but whatever you write is going to be sound a lot better than if i just say it <laughs> wise man wise and man. i wise man and i don't know what i did write in the end i wish i could find it but anyway i <laughs> i put some sort of spin on the job and um, so you've got to remember something like that, haven't you? Oh. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and I mean, he took out all of the three work certes cars, which was yes. was huge for them in their their home Grand Prix. And and John Certes was even at the time was was quite scathing in a time when language was a little more diplomatic. Absolutely right. Yes, John, I mean, I mean, he talked to that my whole team was wiped out and. Uh, We'll never go racing again. And he was obviously very emotional about it. And not surprisingly, but I mean, Jody, you know, it was a rookie mistake. He was new into Grand Prix racing. He's he was new into racing. He didn't have a lot of car racing behind him. And that was what John Surtees was, was quite um, uh, disappointed about. Didn't think that Jody maybe had enough uh, experience to be at that level of racing. No, he he had done Formula Two actually. He'd done he'd gone Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One very quickly. Well, Formula Ford first with the Magic Merlin, but which I sold to him incidentally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, so he came over as the South African star of uh, Driver to Britain, not star of tomorrow, Driver to Britain, and. Um, I mean, he was a huge talent. And the funny thing was, he was pretty, quite a wild man um, in those early days. He was he was hanging it all out. And strange enough, the year he won the World Championship, he cho totally changed. And he was very much a, a driver who who um, who, who was um, very considerate in the way he drove and, and, and didn't take so many risks. It's funny, he went through a metamorphosis, really. The other big... Uh... The great thing about that race was the battle for the lead, four-way battle for the lead. James Hunt, uh, in a, a, a pretty impressive drive, okay, nine, 11 cars actually were taken out, yeah. um, nine in that single uh, accident, two retired in, in, in separate incidents at the early part of the race. James Hunt with Denny Holm and uh, Ronnie Peterson and the eventual winner, as you say, Peter Rebson, separated by virtually nothing at all, and that Hesketh March Ford from, from James Hunt, actually that was a pretty decent performance from James, wasn't it? 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So you just look at the gaps, John. I think it was three and a half seconds between the top four. It was a fabulous race. I mean, having had that total carnage at the beginning, we went on to have this great race. And um, obviously, two very good cars from the McLarens with obviously Revson, Holm and Schechter were the three. There were three factory McLarens in, in the uh, event. And then Ronnie Peterson in the Lotus. And Emerson Fittipaldi, of course, was up there also early on, but he retired um, about halfway through the race with some gearbox problem, if I remember correctly. How, but, how uh, Emerson... I mean, everybody always remembers that at the start of the race. People forget the great battle afterwards. How instrumental then at that stage of James's career was being able to mix it with those big names, even given the, the circumstances of what had happened early on? Oh, what a good question, John. Well, well, I think the, the answer has to be very, doesn't it? Because, you know, the, remember, he was in a, a Hesketh Racing March at that t- time. Hesketh hadn't built their own cars uh, by then. They were in the process of doing so. And so uh, that was a car. It was a privateer car. He was, you know, he was in front of Sever. He was in front of Reutemann. He was in front of Regazzoni, in front of a lot of big names. Um, yeah, I think it was. It was a very important race for James and it put his name into the books of, of all the top team managers, I think. And that's probably why he subsequently went to McLaren, because they saw how well he went. And, and, and also a couple of other things that that 1973 British Grand Prix at Silverstone were were significant for was a mistake by Jackie Stewart while he was battling with Peterson for the lead where he went off onto the infield and subsequently finished down the order and out of the points although he did recover and also the last time we saw that version of the Silverstone circuit and that first lap incident was was the catalyst for change there Andrew yes I think so Jackie's uh, mistake was at, at Beckett's corner and um, he tried to outbreak Ronnie Peterson, uh, and as you said, uh, went off. Um, but uh, uh, was it the catalyst? Uh, do you know, I think the real problem was the speed of it all. It yeah. was so fast around there, and they just had to do something. I mean, the mistake happened because, you know, the, the accident happened because Jody made a mistake. There's no question or doubt about that. Um, personally, very upset they did it. Love that old... Um, old layout, loved watching at uh, Woodcut Corners, see them coming flat out through there, almost flat out. It was a very challenging corner. Mm. Uh, who Big was drifting. it? Hecky Rosberg what, subsequently was the one that set the fastest ever lap round uh, that track. Um, and, you know, I, I had a number of roles there because it was, it was a race sponsored by John Player. And um, we were also handling the John Player account. So I was running around like a blue ass. What's it there? But uh, no, I like that old layout. Um, the 4.7 mile, uh, kilometer layout. It's my favorite layout of the track, actually. And then subsequently, they, they put a, the first thing they did, and they put a, put a couple of kinks in, didn't they? At, yeah. uh, coming into Woodcut. Correct. Um, that squiggly bit, what I call the squiggly bit. Um, but, I always know, felt that was rather an inelegant solution. A MotoGP, which uh, yeah. came to uh, the MotoGP, used the old circuit for a long time after that. And every time I saw the bikes around there, I kept thinking, the car bit, just, it's, it's just not pleasant yeah. to watch. It, it, it was a bit of an, perhaps a knee-jerk reaction. I, I'm not sure. Um, I've, I've got a feeling the wow. bikes used the original layout until the mid-80s, if I'm not mistaken. 
I believe they did, John. And uh, that was a sight to see as well, seeing them coming through there all cranked over with the <laughs> knee rubbing on the on the ground. Yeah, um, yeah I'm just uh, sort of recalling the memory bit. I think you're right. I think that accident was the catalyst for them changing it. What a shame. Of course, if Jody had managed to collect it all up, maybe we would have had the same circuit even to this day. Well, that's a fair point. And, and maybe the result that James Hunt uh, got wouldn't have happened. All ifs and ands. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, your memories of Silverstone and the British Grand Prix. Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure, John. Bye now. Well, it seems only right and proper that we have left our Formula One correspondent, Nick Damon, uh, to uh, the end of this midweek motorsport Formula One 70th birthday special. So, Nick, you have heard what everyone else has been talking about in terms of their first and their most memorable Silverstone Grand Prix. Let's start with the first time you went through those hallowed gates. Much like uh, Bruce uh, and also Stuart Pringle, you were a Kent lad, so I presume Brands Hatch was would have been your your first experience, was it? First of many, yeah. Brand, my first Grand Prix, 1976, when I was 11. Um, saw all bar one of the main Brands Hatch Grand Prix, including the couple of European ones. I can't. There was a reason why. I think I was, I think I was away for one of the European the European Grand Prix. Um, all the way through to was it 85? The last one was. Uh, then obviously you know sulked for a while because Silverstone was the enemy. Um, <laughs> And uh, but uh, the next, uh, but, but I I can say having been to about I think eleven now or ten or eleven yeah eleven Silverstone Grand Prix I've never actually paid um, because I actually went my, my first trip to the Grand Prix was 1994 and uh, a friend of mine who I I got to know was Bernie Eccleston's PA and she got me some free tickets so I rode up with my friend Paddy so I probably would be probably on the and probably the Bermota actually in '94 might have been the Ducati 888. I'm not quite sure which one it was. We rode up there, um, went up the top uh, around Vale. I remember being up just on Grand Prix Sunday for the whole event. No, just the Sunday. Just right. rode up in the morning, did the whole. That's from that's from South East London, John, not from Milton Keynes because it'd been pointless to ride 15 miles. Um, so I think South East London, and and what it's always turned out to be one of the most controversial races of many years with um, uh, Michael Schumacher um, getting black flagged for overtaking Damon Hill on the on the warm up lap. Though I'll be absolutely honest with you, because we had you know this is 1995, we had no sort of we had no sort of um, radio or anything. We actually didn't really know what was going on. Uh, and we didn't really know why the black flag. And in fact, like so many live sporting events uh, of those era, it wasn't until I went back home and watched the highlights with Murray's commentary. I actually, realised what had happened. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that Damon won, which was great. You know, hero of the British nation as he was. Um, and a fellow, fellow man from you know, fellow Brands Hatch exponent as well. Yeah, um, overtook Damon Hill on the formation lap and then didn't serve the stop go penalty in time. He's also banned. For two races, let's yeah, not forget. 1994 is a season which we were the, and I think has, a, has had already had a whole book written about it because it was um, political machinations gone wrong, compounded with, of course, with the uh, the passing of Ayrton Senna, the change in security, Burton inverted commas. Oh, there's no inverted commas. Burton cheating like heck. Um, and, you know, the, yeah, regardless of the, you know, Benetton, of the traction control and everything else, they should have been kicked out for the taking the fuel flow filter out, which nearly uh, incinerated Josh Verstappen uh, to a crisp. And, you know, so it's it's a, a a weird season. And there's another weird race where they decide to do a nice two-race ban for Michael would uh, even the championship up, which he got a long way ahead of because they've been cheating with the traction control 
and everything else. Of course, ended with him crashing into Damon Hill to win the race, which has never been allowed in Australia. But you know, it's it's 26 years ago, so who's counting? Uh, it, it was a, the, the beginning of that race, or, or indeed the the formation part of that race. Schumacher overtook Hill twice, once when he left the dummy grid and then further around the lap, but he did drop back uh, to be second on the grid at the start. Coulthard stalled, so he had to start from the back of the grid. So that was another formation lap. Eddie Irvine's car broke down uh, on that. Again on the second formation lap, Schumacher overtook Hill twice, and Martin Brundon's McLaren Peugeot... Um, Failed at the second start in a cloud of smoke. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it was... Yeah, McLaren, Peugeot and failure really wasn't a rare combination. <laughs> no. Peugeot were much better impersonations of grenades than they were of racing engines. Uh, and the uh, the 25,000 uh, uh, fine that Benetton took that uh, there uh, and gave Schumacher a, a severe reprimand, um, they decided to... Uh, appeal that and the World Motorsport Council put it up to half a million dollars and two remains panned as well. Well, you know, they bite a bit, but there, it, you know, it was, it was in many ways, you know, that, that whole year was an example of, of everything that was bad in F1 in those days and obviously including safety. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Damon Hill won in the zero car, of course. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that went that Berger was... Prom- uh, sorry, no, that was uh, qualifying I'm looking at there. Excuse me. Damon Hill won from Jean Alessi, from Mika Hakkinen. So Williams, uh, Renault, Ferrari, McLaren, Peugeot. Well done. Third, yes. <laughs> Ruben in the Jordan Hart was fourth. Then Coulthard fighting back from the very back of the grid. Although he should have started further up. He should have started second, shouldn't he? Uh, on the, the grid, or a little bit further up the grid anyway. Uh, but had to start all the way from the back. Then Ukiyo Katayama got the last of the points and just outside the points to make up the top ten. Heinz Harold Frentzen for Sauber Mercedes. Jos Verstappen in the other Benetton Ford. Footwork Ford. Christian Fittipaldi in ninth. And Pierluigi Martini made up the top ten. So that was your first experience of, yeah. of Silverstone going to the enemy, uh, as mm. you'd said. Um, purely because you've got free tickets, clearly. I, I know exactly what you're... Nice bike run as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, from then on, of course, you you started... Work, when did you start working in the Formula 1 pit then? First year I worked... I decided in 96. That was after the British Grand Prix. And 97 is the first one I worked. And so what have you chosen? So that's why you never paid after that, because you've all, you'd always gone yeah. there or blagged yourself some, some hospitality exactly. or some tickets. Yeah. Um, yeah. So which, which have you chosen as your, your most memorable year? 2000. Ah. The and... year of the mud. Oh. Um, Easter weekend, when, of course. Yes, when the race was put back to April for calendar reasons or slash Bernie trying to show Sylvan who's bolstering one of the never-ending renegotiations of the uh, the fee and another probably Silverton saying, oh, we're not going to bother. And, and that, you know, that's been going on for how long now? 30 years? So, uh, yeah, so he, he, he spanked them with a nice April event, which was not helped by the British weather being um, incredibly wet beforehand, so the car parks were all soaked yes. and everything else. But the reason it's the most memorable, because the race itself was dull as ditch water, is Sunday morning warm-up. Sunday morning warm-up was delayed for nearly two hours by fog. But being from, we stayed on air for the whole thing. So we did a two-hour show, effectively, where all they had were myself and my colleague Ian Tyndall, who unfortunately, who sadly um, passed away last year. Um, and 
we filled the show and it was and it was great so we actually we actually talked to everyone of the 20 drive uh, 20 i think 22 drivers maybe four drivers were in that year all the team bosses anybody who moved and it's my first kind of experience because previously we were, yeah we were kind of like disembodied thumbs we actually became the stars of the show no one was watching but i didn't care about that disembodied so, thumb like that so, so basically you know it was my first chance to become a proper lovey and run and and, and helm, a sh- uh, helm a show you know what i'm saying so yes that was it was uh, it was good fun so for the sake of uh, those who want to know these things, the top six were Yano Truly at the end of the race, Jordan Mugen Honda, the two Williams BMWs, Button and Schumacher, fifth and fourth. Michael Schumacher, third spot on the podium behind the two McLaren, uh, Mercedes, Hakkinen and Coulthard winning the race. And it wasn't very interesting. Rubens had qualified in poor position and didn't last very long. Got overtaken the pits. And then had a hydraulic issue, apparently, according to the reply. Um, so that was so you basically remember that because of how much extra work you had to do, and the fact that it made you a global superstar. Love. Well, yeah, I think if you define global superstar to coming live to the homes of between seventeen and twenty Germans and a few French people on Sunday morning, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Nick Damon then with the night. Don't forget, John, and this is the mantra you have to remember. It is all about me. It is all about you, <laughs> absolutely. 1994 and 2000 finish off our contributors' look at Silverstone Grand Prix. And I hope you've enjoyed uh, this special midweek motorsport. And I think, Tim, that's about all we've got time for. Well, you might think that, John, even as it's now three minutes past ten, but we've got something to give away to our listeners, first of all. Well, we sort of, sort of have. It's not from us, but it's from our lovely friends and colleagues at Motorsport Magazine. Uh, we clearly weren't the only ones to notice that it was Formula One's 70th birthday for the World Drivers' Championship today, the 13th of April. You might have thought that a magazine that's been around for 100 years would pick that up as well. And indeed they have. And to make sure that the occasion is marked properly, the main issue is Formula One at 70. And it's brilliant. Uh, it'll be on the newsstands now, actually. Uh, and it's also available digitally. And for Radio Show Limited and Midweek Motorsport listeners, you can have it free. All you have to do, and listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you, if you type into your browser, motorsportmagazine.com forward slash Radio Le Mans. Okay, motorsportmagazine.com forward slash Radio Le Mans, that will take you to the page. We have tweeted it already. Uh, We'll tweet it again. It will be on the front page of our website and on the collective as well with a long-form version of that, but I can't tell you that right now just in case there's any issues. But I've just tried it, and the short version is working. So nothing else, no HTTP, no www, just motorsportmagazine.com forward slash Radio Le Mans, and you can have that Formula One at 70 issue absolutely free. So that's pretty cool, huh? Uh, right, tomorrow night, it's Big Thursday, Tim. Yes, it starts at 8 o'clock on RS1 with the Toro Radio Show, and this week it's the English version. Uh, so that is Ben and Matt and Jordan, and this week they're going to be talking about North Wilkesboro appearing in iRacing. They're going to be doing a little investigation into the modern community and also looking at the F1 2020 game, uh, which apparently is really good, uh, but it takes seven months to load. (laughs) Very good. I like what you did there. Then at nine o'clock, no Richard Creel on the grid this week. 
No, but uh, Tony Shebecki is joined by uh, the other two people from Racetalk.com. That's uh, Matt and Dale, uh, and they'll be uh, talking about uh, lots of Australian things. Yeah. Uh, including uh, some hot news. And again, they've got some fabulous guests. And then it's RS2 at 10.30, half 10 UK time. That's half five if you're in the US on the eastern seaboard. And we're off to America's National Park of Speed. Yes, Elkhart Lake. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Brilliant circuit, just over four miles around. Never been. It's really? Near, it's, it's, it's on the ever-shortening list of circuits that I haven't been to but want to go to. And in fact, do you remember I was talking a couple of weeks ago on the show about um, never having been to Nagaro because ah, yeah. uh, the French GT Championship, uh, which is the only real thing that runs there anymore, is always Easter weekends, and I'm always yes. busy on Easter weekend. Well, obviously this year it didn't, and it's been rescheduled, and uh, the new FFSR uh, French GT Championship calendar has been announced, uh, and Nagaro's on August the 23rd now. Yeah, you won't be able to go Which means I still can't go. No, absolutely. You won't be able to go then either. Thanks for all the tweets tonight. It's been brilliant. So uh, that's the next round of the IMSA Pro Series then tomorrow uh, at uh, on RS2. And they had 100 entries. No clue how they whittled it down to 50. Two special guest entries. Uh, Brad Koslowski and Robert Wickens joining us as well. Join me, Ben and Nick for that and then Saturday it's the European Culture Show you asked for it dear listener this is your fault it is your fault you asked for it and we've done it we put in some work there'll be ways for you to vote on the front page and on the uh, and on the collective on Facebook Uh, and that's all Saturday night RS1 from 8 o'clock make sure you listen in vote early and we're going to have, we're taking it sort of semi-seriously because otherwise Nick will have a, you know what. Uh, uh, but that's eight o'clock anyway on Saturday night. Uh, in the meantime, there's no time to explain as the llama is still blowing out the candles. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.